What year is it? <laughs> Happy New Year. Well, I guess we sort of like do our year end reviews by the Lunar New Year calendar. So, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, that, there it that is. makes sense. It does. The Oscars. The Oscars calendar. Send me a red packet. I'm not married yet. <laughs> me too. Give me some money. Thank you. Put my phone number up. People can give me money <laughs> for a good podcast call. I accept PayPal, Cash App, PayPal, Bitcoin, <laughs> do whatever, man. Ben's only accepting Dogecoin. Are we seriously starting out this episode begging for money? <laughs> oh, no, we make our own currency, Deepcoin. Deepcoin. Deep yeah. Why not? It's a good name. It's a good name for a cryptocurrency. It sounds like a conspiracy theorist currency. Deep coin for the deep state. <laughs> we'll make away with millions of dollars so we can fund this podcast forever. <laughs> I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yep. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. On Deep Cut, when we're not starting our own cryptocurrency, we usually compare our director's <laughs> most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. But once a year, on a very special time of the year, we discuss the movies, films, and motion pictures of yesteryear. Well said. <laughs> was that your Diana accent? I don't know what that was. Your Spencer. <laughs> and VV. And music. Also, don't invest in cryptocurrency. Like, the bubble has fully burst on this, right? This is not financial know. advice. Yeah. No, yeah. Also that. Don't take financial advice from us. No, never from us. Never from any podcast, probably. It is our big 2022 year in review episode. Yeah. We will be covering our general feelings about our 2022 year of year watching. Ew. Year of watching. Edit that in. Year of consumption media. Yes. Media consumption. <laughs> uh, dying of consumption. Great. We'll, we'll also talk about the general trends of the year in movies before moving on to shouting out some honorable mentions and closing out with revealing to you guys and also revealing to our fellow co-hosts. Each other. Our top three films of last year. And as always, the films that we discussed on this episode will be in the description of the episode. So there's no need to write these down. You can check them out when you finish listening. So as we begin this episode, I want to ask, how was your movie watching this year, boys? Well, how was your year in general, I guess? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> Me. Uh, it was a pretty good year of watching movies, I think, in terms of like the amount that I was watching. This was the year that I attended the Singapore International Film Festival, which was, I think, the first in-person edition since COVID hit. So this was actually quite recent. This was in December of 2022. And while I was at the festival, I was also doing the Youth Critics Program, which was a good time. I've written two articles for an upcoming publication. I do not know when it comes out. Hopefully mm. in February, which is when this podcast comes out. Ooh. Hopefully we can drop a link in the description. Mm-hmm. Made some money. Yeah, <laughs> I won an the, award. Yeah. won the Youth Critic Award for one of the articles that I wrote. One of our own! Woo. Yeah, um... Just to tell you what I wrote about, the first article is about this Japanese film, Small, Slow, But Steady, directed by Shomiyake, which is about a deaf 
boxer. The article is about its approach towards deaf representation, which I found very fascinating, slightly problematic, something to dig into. Read the article if you're interested. And then the other one's kind of just a very small and quick review of the Indonesian film that won the best Southeast Asian film or best Asian film at the festival. It's called Autobiography, directed by Makbul Mubarak. It's a very confidently directed first feature. It's like a seven-country international co-production. Wow. It's good, uh, but you can read my review to find out what I actually really think about it. <laughs> I don't think it's bad or anything. But it's definitely interesting uh, to think about in terms of where movie making is going around the world. Mm. Also interesting to think about, since we've just recorded this episode about Sundance films, with mm-hmm. Russell Goldman. This is kind of in that wheelhouse of thinking about that as well. Mm. Yeah. So that's the festival. And I think other updates to 2022 is I discovered Kinyo Tanaka's feature films. And I think that was like the biggest discovery of the year yeah. in terms of movie watching. If you don't know, Kinyo Tanaka is a Japanese actress who was extremely prolific. She was very active in, I want to say, the 40s to like, till she passed on. And she had a lot of collaborators like Mizuguchi, Ozu, et cetera, et cetera. She was a very famous actress at the time, but then she also directed six movies and she was essentially the first female director from Japan. I watched three of those movies and they were such well-directed movies and really give you like a different perspective or point of view of how you can direct something that feels still very similar to her contemporaries, but just filtered through a different person's point of view that is not the Japanese filmmakers that you already know mm. from that time. Mm. More often men. Exactly. And it was so special for people to watch them. And I think more people should see them to kind of add this dimension to the idea of what films from Japan in that period looked like and could have looked like and what we could have expected more from. Mm. I think that's very exciting and something to look into. And I started a new job. Yeah. <laughs> Working at the Asian Film Archive, oh which goodness. has been interesting and, and new. I like it. <laughs> That's me. So proud of you, Ben. Likewise. You had a really good year. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Should I go next? Yes, you can go next. Okay. <laughs> this year for me was a very interesting year. I think personally, there was a lot of things that happened. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but I think that sort of informed my movie watching, which sort of was, I got bursts of energy to watch a lot. And then a lot of periods of time where I didn't watch that much. Um, which was sort of unlike previous years where I had the stamina to get through a full year of like full movie watching. I don't know if it's like I'm getting old or (laughs) I have less time or I have a job that I need to like spend time on or I'm just tired. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like I'm just giving excuses, but... But the I was still quite happy with all the movies that I caught this summer, especially traveling and seeing you, Eli, in New York and um, yeah. catching a few movies with you and going to a lot of rep theaters there. And also seeing you as well this summer, Ben. That was a big highlight. Yeah. The movie was hot pot. <laughs> <laughs> just as good as any movie imo um, <laughs> which you ate together in the airport in singapore yes, briefly yes, right yes yeah yes. thanks for giving the context of that <laughs> yeah. little joke. <laughs> no, <a> joke. <laughs> but there's a big part of me like being in new york and and going to all the rep screenings there uh was a part of me that really missed having that being so accessible and just like every day 
having the chance to just watch an incredible film. Whereas here in Hong Kong, our rep screenings are sort of few and far between. Um, and when it's sort of like a dead month for movie releases, it's really a dead month for me going to the movies. Mm. With that being said, I discovered or I dove into a few filmographies outside of the ones that we covered on the podcast this year that I hope to cover soon uh, that include the late and great Mikio Naruse, which has been an ongoing project that I am hoping to, to finish in the next couple of years where I watch the whole filmography. Um, <laughs> um, I also really got into Ernst Lubitsch this year. There was a mm. retrospective of his that was playing at a local at cinemas here in Hong Kong this year. Um, and I was happy to catch a couple of them, realize that they're sort of the greatest old Hollywood movies that I've ever seen. Yeah. So went a little deeper, just always fascinated by, or not fascinated, but impressed by his writing, the direction and the performances that he gets out of his actors. Always a joyous time with Lubitsch. And also Terrence Davies, my queer man, queer man, um, <laughs> got into quite a few of his movies this year. Really emotional, powerful filmmaking. I want to save this for when we cover him because mm. we can take our time and cover mm. him. Yeah, but yeah. it was a big joy catching his movies this year. I went to a, the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival as well towards the back half of the year. Uh, caught a few small Asian films that I really enjoyed. I will shout out one later on, but um, I also caught um, Small Slow But Steady, um, the one that Ben did his award-winning write-up on and <laughs> enjoyed it quite a bit. Stop. <laughs> but yeah, good year for movie watching. In general, a little bit of a bump, but still, still a decent year. Very nice. Okay, how about you, Eli? Yeah, how about me? <laughs> I have been thinking about this a lot since the topic of my movie watching came up in one of our episodes on Miranda July, forthcoming uh, miniseries. I would call this a year of very serious change in my engagement with movies overall. So this was the year that I more officially decided that I don't want my primary career to be in filmmaking. It's mm -hmm. my first year teaching full time and I'm really loving it. But necessarily that means that I have less time for movie watching. In addition to that, I'm no longer writing screenplays for fun and I don't really get ideas for movies. My mm. art making mode of choice these days is making music, which I also very much so love. I'm still reading my friends writing and that's the primary way I engage with movie making itself. And, you know, it bears staying for the first time on the pod, really, since we covered a hero in our deep cut upkeep on Oscar Farhadi, that the revelation that not just a hero, but potentially most of Oscar Farhadi's filmography is plagiarized, <laughs> allegedly. Slightly plagiarized. At least slightly in some cases, <laughs> more so in other cases. Yeah, because there was a big article that came out after we yeah, released yeah. that episode um, that really went back through his filmography. Yeah. Where, like, everything's a scam. Yeah. Yeah. Him being, I mean, it's hard to say at this point if he is uh, 
at one point he was my favorite director and to have that be rocked really makes me question the method or purpose with which I approach movie viewing in general. Mm. Mm. I think I didn't really recognize it at the time we were recording that episode on A Hero, but I'm yeah. a little rocked by that experience. It's almost like the auteur theory is a little... The auteur theory that we use to define our episodes for this podcast yeah. is problematic. Yeah. Sort of burning down, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's something that we talk about and know theoretically, but yeah, it's it's a different thing to really feel... Yeah. A shaken in trust in how you mm. approach mm. a whole art form. Yeah. Yeah. Movies in summation are no longer really my primary passion or ambition in life, but I still have the desire to engage with them emotionally and critically to implement them in my life. And I'm asking who I am as a movie watcher, less from the standpoint of taste than purpose. Mm. So when I think about what I want or need from them, it's less for pointers on how to make movies or assessing quality than mm -hmm. what it lends to me experientially and intellectually in a broader life sense. And yeah. I want that enjoyment. I think that's like almost like maybe the only way to interact with movies sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Like especially when I was having all these conversations about like the role of film criticism during the Youth Critics program and like thinking about, oh, like what are you doing when you are a critic? Mm. And in the end, all you can really do is like come from a personal perspective yeah and yeah more recently i've been thinking when i look at a movie all i can really tell you is whether i liked it or not and for what reasons but i can't really tell you if it's a good movie for you or like for other people but what is even like good filmmaking anymore right yeah. like i feel like the range <laughs> is like i don't know like i appreciate a lot of lo-fi filmmaking that like doesn't go by classic filmmaking rules mm -hmm. but who cares yeah. not who cares but like who cares if you like a movie that other people don't like? It's like as long as it's like good for you. Mm -hmm. And even in going into the rationale of why you think it's good for you, there's a trap in there as well, because the goal of that is not to justify to your reader why you like it. It's to examine yourself and your engagement mm -hmm. with that movie. Mm -hmm. I am enjoying currently writing longer reviews on Letterboxd, one of my recent favorite pieces of writing that I've done was on tar and it's mm -hmm. about how we'll talk about this shortly I'm sure but how it has sort of reframed a little bit how I think about sound in my day-to-day -day life in general mm -hmm. I'm also watching movies so that I can talk about them with friends and create podcasts about movies with you two yeah if those are the only things I get out of movies nowadays and it's it's not solely that there's still the experience then I'm content. Mm. So that's where I am with movies at the end of 2022. In terms of the movies themselves, yeah, it was an all right year. Yeah. It was all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Let's talk about this year in movies. Let's shall. Woo! Should we just talk about the general? We were just about to get into this before we started recording, right? And I said it was a strong mid-year <laughs> strong mid-year what the hell is a strong mid-year but do you think that like because last year when we recorded i think the past two years we recorded i was like oh this is still holdovers from covid mm. holdovers from covid right. holdovers from covid do you think that this is still a holdovers from covid kind of year or were the directors that were releasing films this year were like stepping up to bat like let's make a movie like, let's make a real-ass movie this year. And I, this is what we ended up with. 
There were real Tush movies this year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> tush movies? Yeah, real Tush movies. Yeah, real ass movies. <laughs> He's a teacher. He can't say ass on mic. <laughs> I think the pandemic... I mean, we are a pandemic podcast, but that's true. These films came out, and I think the films were better. But then I also think I became a person that was more selective about the films that I wanted to say were films that I really liked. Yeah, right. Even when the films were improving, I was also being more personally critical of the films I was watching or the mm. things I was expecting from films. Yeah, that kind of made it seem like everything became more mid. In that sense, yeah. <laughs> and like the films that I maybe thought were good but not great this year might have been great. If you asked me five years ago, if they had come out five years ago, mm. I think that's kind of what's happening with my taste and my experience of the movies. And I think when I say it's strong mid, I'm saying that there was a lot of good movies this year, I think. And I think for every kind of audience member that was something for you this year, yeah, it's just not so many films for me felt like they really like crossed that line of like great films yeah mm-hmm. and even the films that have crossed the line for me which we will talk about are films that have some problems <laughs> you know comparing with like 2021 felt somewhat similarly as well where i had like a very strong number one which is petite maman and i was just like this this is a movie yeah. everything else yeah. Yeah, nothing bigger than petite maman <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> what a movie yeah. we just need celine siama to come back next year mm-hmm. what what about you guys in general oh Oh. (laughs) what about you guys in general how do you feel about the quality of films that came out this year right right yeah yeah i think i would agree that there were a lot of really good ones as with last year my favorite things came about from taking a little risk and trying to watch something that i either knew very little about or to which not a lot of attention was being paid by the whatever you want to call it general viewing public blah blah Mm -hmm. but i would say that there were also surprises in the big movies of the year there are Mm. some really big movies that i genuinely loved and Mm -hmm. again i know we're teeing up a lot but we will talk about that in a moment (laughs) so i i'm pretty content with 2022 yeah i liked this movie year overall i was pretty happy with this movie year like i set out to at least for 2022 movies i wasn't so eager to catch new releases as i was previous years especially because new like new releases being new hollywood releases and i sort of pick and chose the ones that i wanted to go see and looking at my year end list i'd say like one maybe basically one and a half movies in my top 10 are from this the u.s which is great great to hear great to see awesome i thought it was quite a strong year for international cinema even the american fair that i saw was pretty decent. I don't want to, like, start off by... Well, I'm the last one, so I can start off. I don't want to start off yeah. by talking about the 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 big, big blue Navi in the room, but um, <laughs> James Cameron uh, released his massive, massive follow-up um, to 2008's Avatar and made a shit ton of money and <laughs> made a damn good film, in my opinion, as well. So props to him. I think he maybe is ushering in this new age of movie going post pandemic age of movie going a lot of people were like oh nolan's gonna do it with tenet oh top gun maverick's <laughs> gonna do it this year but i think that definitively avatar making a shit ton of money and everyone decently enjoying their time and maybe even going back to see it again like i did 
might be the the big like movies are back movie. What do you guys think? Of Avatar? Or the reception to Avatar. I have like a bit of a spicy take. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy the experience of watching Avatar. It was like a roller coaster ride. And when I was talking to my colleagues about this, like it was like, oh, this is like a theme park ride movie. It's like 4D. <laughs> lose 1d it's just 3d right it's like a 4d yes amusement park right yes um and it's well made it looks incredible obviously the tech going on is great pandora is such a nice place to look at it sure is as something that's completely cg but oh here it comes here it comes the storytelling is so simplistic that i cannot deal with it what and i'm pushing back against people defending james cameron's extremely simple storytelling and i'm just confused because i don't know why so many people are defending one of the richest filmmakers of all time and like he doesn't need it it is he funny doesn't need, how he doesn't need defending but that's so like... many people are jumping in and i'm like like why why do you why is this the person that you need to defend and then i'm seeing them attacking much smaller filmmakers for their successes <laughs> and i'm like yeah. avatar made two fucking billion dollars and this is a man that you want to defend so hard i'm like okay Chill the fuck out. <laughs> I think I know why. You are right that it is funny that Avatar The Way of Water has become something of an underdog in tone in the way it's discussed. Like, what the fuck? Mm. But I, it's coming out at a time when everyone is exhausted with Marvel. Yeah. Mm. And I think that is the thing that helps Avatar The Way of Water. Because yeah. it is well made, good to look at. Uh, the story regardless of what you think about the complexity is at minimum serviceable to get to a good experience mm -hmm. in the movie theater. And it feels like it is original fresh property because it is not pre-existing superhero material. Now it's a continuation of what's going to yeah. be a massive franchise. So mm. it is a franchise. It's sort of a false feeling. Like I find it very weird. But okay, no franchises are governed by one singular director except for this franchise. As a podcast that covers directors rather than like a group of producers building a franchise, I think there's something to be said about how he 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 was the one that's able to do it. He's like the one of the only ones that is able to do it. Yeah. The simpleness of the plot and it's aids in its four quadrant appeal. Uh, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I will, I still will defend James Cameron. Stop. Because <laughs> <laughs> this man doesn't care about you. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, he doesn't give a shit. He just wants you to make him the biggest man in the world. And okay, I think. Okay, fine. And everyone, I'm not going to, yeah, everyone has seen the movie. So I'm not going to be like, oh, go see the movie because you fucking seen the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Jim's got me. Awa, Awa's got me. Pyacon, um, <laughs> help! Yeah, I don't know. The, this is the last I'm gonna talk about this. Like, this is how much I want to engage in the freaking discourse about this movie. Okay, I talked about what one and a half movies were American movies, and the one movie was was Avatar: The Way of Water. That's 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 cleanly in my top 10 and probably the the best blockbuster i've seen this year interesting yeah <laughs> i would say that avatar the way of water is hands down the best blockbuster i saw this year yeah of maybe the like two or three that i saw <laughs> it's emotionally engaging the 
acting work is is really impressive in this one. I agree. Like a massive step up from the first movie. Agreed. Definitely, yes. Yeah, and I love the family stuff. It's been so hard for me to be excited about sequels to things, and I am very excited for Avatar 3. Like, it's uh, hard, to, hard, to, hard to say. And I think because, for me, Cameron was a director that kickstarted my love for for films. Mm-hmm. You can say that Wong Karwai was the was the director that kickstarted my love for like art house cinema, but pre that, like as a child, like as like an 8-year-old, like I fucking loved James Cameron's movies. They were invigorating, <laughs> they were action-packed, they had kids in them that I could relate to and I wish I I like was in those movies. They appealed to me as a child and they still appeal to me now and I think it's great that he's doing what he's doing despite everything else going on in Hollywood. Okay, I have a hot Um, take. (laughs) Go for it. Based on what Wilson is saying and a piece that I read that I wish I could attribute properly, but it might have been a letterboxed review. I think that James Cameron is one of the great children's filmmakers in that he conveys childlike perspective and there is a very innocent angle on avatar 2 in the way that it views good and evil Mm -hmm. but that allows for some complexity in terms Mm -hmm. of identity what forms a family unit Mm -hmm. how does a family integrate with a broader community Mm -hmm. and also in that it allows a lot of danger into the experience in ways that a lot of children's media do not there are real life and death stakes here in a way that respects the seriousness with which children view the world they know that the world is dangerous and i don't think a lot of children's media allows for that danger interesting yeah now there are also a lot of really basic and potentially troubling simple signifiers of native and indigenous cultures Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that get thrown into this movie yes i don't really think there's too much of a way around that but what it gets to from there about those themes on family units and the nuances of those kind of bonds I Mm. find worthwhile in this movie and actually thematically rich. Mm -hmm. Great. I I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pit them against the Marvel movies that came out this year because I'm sure we have to like touch on them. Yeah, but the Marvel movies are not good (laughs) in general. They were shit. They were shit. It's going down the drain this year. It's really going down the drain. In my opinion, as someone who's who once loved these movies. The year the world realized that we're not getting Taika Waititi back. We're not getting another Hunt for the Wilder People. Yeah. We're not yeah. going back to Boy. Mm-mm. It's done. I think my resistance to the embrace of Avatar is that we are embracing the serviceable in relation to the bad. Ah, interesting. It's not serviceable. And I'm just like, that's kind of it. You just said the story was serviceable, Wilson. I said that's... at minimum serviceable, whether or not you view the screenplay itself as quality. Like, I disagree that it's nuanced about family. If you were to take out Awa from the story, it is extremely stereotypical or like extremely archetypal. Yeah. Mm. And not that that's actually a problem necessarily, but I think there is still a better version of that, that it mm. could have been done. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it looks great. Yes, all these pieces are enough. I just think actually the execution of the story can still be better. Mm. And that's a thing that I'm asking from Cameron. Like, I think mm. if he were to make the execution of that same story 
just slightly more thought out, <laughs> slightly more, I don't know, finessed, um, that this would really, really be good. But now it's just kind of like, okay, it's fine. You know what I mean? And that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I still don't think it's a bad movie. I just like, I'm just like, it's fine. That makes sense. Okay. We're at where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> this is where we're starting. Still me. <laughs> we can all agree. Pyacon is our best friend. Mm-hmm. I guess the best Marvel movie that came out this year was Wakanda Forever, which is Ryan Coogler's follow-up Also to... Blue People. Yeah, also Blue People. <laughs> which is really funny when I was like, whoa, wait, this is Avatar 2? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much to say about it. It was fine. I, I didn't see it. Like, I'm glad Bassett's getting a nomination. She's probably going to win for it, which is going to be crazy. Yeah. Which would be crazy for Marvel, honestly. And Angela Bassett. She's not won, and, right? Yeah. Yes. I oh, think right. this is going to be her first. But to win for this. Yeah, she's it, yeah. That's in the bag for sure. Yike. Yike. But yeah, good for Angela Bassett. Yeah. I hope they stop making Marvel movies. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the next trend. <laughs> yeah. We had a lot of Eat the Rich movies and TV shows this year. For better or for worse. Th these are the ones I listed. Glass Onion, The Menu. Triangle Sadness and the White Lotus. I'm not sure if there are others. Um, there might be. <laughs> I mean, the Batman flirted with being an Eat the Rich movie, but then ultimately backed off from it. Mm. Batman cannot be an Eat the Rich movie. He's Batman. Exactly. <laughs> Can't eat himself. Or can he? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, have you all seen many of these? Or I've only seen Glass Onion and the White Lotus out of these. Uh, I've only seen Glass Onion. <laughs> The two that I saw, I thought they were fine. I, I like yeah. the, this season of The White Lotus. I just feel like they are eat the rich kind of movies, but they're not really like eating the rich kind of movies because they're sort of made by rich people. Yeah. Mm. And I think there's like a, I can't like shit on them that much. Like it's mm. like, I think there it always gets to a, a certain, like there's a fault, like it comes up mm. to a point. I just wanted more. I just wanted them to try more. I wanted Ryan Johnson to really go full ham on ed norton's character like it's a little disappointing because you sort of know what you're getting into at the start mm -hmm. of the film but then the payoff isn't as glorious as you want it to be but i guess it's fine that these movies are are heading in this direction i just i'm hoping for someone to be a little ballsier i wonder if ostland really went there with the movie or or the menu no. really went there I mean, okay, first of all, all four of these titles I dropped, they're all set on islands, which is funny. That is funny. Good point. Good point. It's like, why? Inter like, I'm, it's interesting that they do that. And I'm sure there's a reason for it. And I don't think we have time to investigate how that happened in the writing of all these things. Maybe they had to silo the rich people so that they can just make fun of them in just like a group. And mm. also film in more isolation in the pandemic, probably, too. Probably. Maybe. Yeah. But also I kind of realize that it means that it's a way of separating them from other people mm. in terms of like the, the storytelling. Although like the menu, Triangle Sadness and White Lotus are about class divides within those islands, I guess. Mm. Right. My problem with all of them is that, yes, they are made by people with money and that's not in itself an issue. My problem with them is that all of them show you rich people as stupid. Yeah. Which I think I've like told bo both of you before, which is that yeah. when you do that, then you're just making fun of them. And just characterizing them as stupid. But then that doesn't really eat rich. You're just making fun of them. And I think that mockery doesn't really do anything for that type of story. Mm. The only one that I think doesn't really treat them as stupid is the White Lotus. But it's more about them fighting each other because of more interpersonal issues. 
And this so season wasn't really about, about yeah, this season was really about class divide. It was about these interpersonal yeah. relationships. Yeah, so like it wasn't really an eat the rich movie, but the other three definitely were about the stupidity of rich people, which I don't, don't think makes sense. Like, how do you think they got that rich? <laughs> they can't be that stupid. The film that I mentioned to both of you before that makes sense of this is Parasite. And in Parasite, mm. they might be ignorant. They might be slightly silly, but they're not stupid. Yep. And they always protect their own. It doesn't shy away from the cruelty of that ambivalence. These three movies are not, they don't do that. The menu, I think, officially the worst movie I saw in 2022 <laughs> because of just how stupid it was. In a year when you saw Jurassic World Dominion. Yeah, like honestly, kind of crazy. <laughs> Jesus. Triangle Santa is also one of the movies that I really disliked. I, and I think a lot of people liked it because they thought, oh, you know, this is just like a good time making fun of them. But I really didn't find it very funny. The first act, mm. I think, is like interesting. And the second two acts just kind of are like a extremely long joke that is not funny to me. Mm. Yeah, I hear a lot of people raving about uh, Dolly DeLeon's performance in the film. Who is he? <laughs> she is the person who is the crewmate and then takes over the island. Oh, yes, right, right. Uh, Ooh, spoilers. I think. I haven't seen it. It was okay. It was okay. The okay. way the film ends is not great. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> the other thing that making these movies about stupid rich people does links back to what Wilson said about a cap on how incisive these movies can be, which is that by making the character stupid, it makes it more about individual fault mm. than it does about the rot in the system of wealth overall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, as Ben is saying, Parasite points to an across-the-board apathy and selfishness that is more to the point and cuts deeper. Glass Onion, though, I will borrow from critic and former classmate of ours claire schaefer whose writing you can find all over the internet including rolling stone new york times great writer mm -hmm. in her letterbox review of glass onion i liked this idea she put forward which was that glass onion does a good job of portraying how rich people attract people into their sphere of influence with the privileges that they offer and showing how that works within the friend group of Glass Onion, I think is maybe the the most insightful or compelling aspect of that movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. Though it is also entertaining, baseline. It is an entertaining movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I guess the other interesting thing that I think they all borrow from Parasite as well is like they all have a bit of a twist, I think, where they always bring it in where like, oh, you know, the working class can just be as bad as the upper class. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that twist, but I think it's about the treatment of that. And I think Parasite still does that better in terms of how desperate you get right. yeah. when you are in a working class situation. These films don't, they're not nuanced in the way that they approach or like no. do with that. It's like a wink, wink kind of thing. It's like, oh, you know, they can be bad mm. too. It's not just the rich people. And I think that's a bit of a dumb take on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about ambulance? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> they're just trying to they're just trying to steal money from a bank. Isn't that eating the rich? I don't know. I've not seen that, but okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> cut it out, cut it out, cut it out. That movie is about drone shots. <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. I shouldn't say that. Damn good um, action movie though. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Like Bay at his finest. Also, Yaya Abdul Mateen and Jake Joan Hall are both great. As brothers! So good. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Next okay. trend before this goes on for way too long. 
stop motion. We got Marcel Shell this year, which is a totally delightful movie. I agree. That made me cry a bunch. Mm. We also got Pinocchio from Guillermo del Toro, which I have not yet watched, but I'm excited to watch. Mm. It's nice to see that whether through internet influence or through a director throwing their weight behind it, stop motion is still alive and well. It's a totally delightful art form that if you're a listener to the show, you'll know that I have a special proclivity for. Mm. Yes. It's just nice to see it continue in unique ways. Marcel Lachelle does something that I still cannot wrap my head around, which is that they are using what is clearly daylight on set to light stop motion shots. I can answer your question, Eli, because I searched it up. Oh, (laughs) please do. They filmed the film three times. What? Essentially, all the stop motion was done in studio. Okay. And then composited onto live action footage, which means that they shot the film live action without... Marcel's presence in the shot. Whoa. They shot it essentially missing its main character and all the live action stuff. And then they shot the stop motion in studio, matching the lighting in studio with the lighting in that real life <sighs> shot. And then compositing Jeez. those characters so into cool. that live action shot. Which means that the like Dean Fleischer camp was just talking to nothing for most mm. of the movie, which is like <laughs> pretty great. The seamlessness of that compositing is very well done. Totally. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and Thank you for enlightening me. I can't remember why it was three times. I remember distinctly it being three times, but I'm not sure how, why. I'm just thinking about how intense that process is and the amount of planning you have to do to shoot a live action and then make sure that you know exactly what the imaginary character is moving and doing yeah. in the shot. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Uh, that requires a lot of um, nickel wizardry and like planning. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Ah, and just a totally sweet, yeah. direct movie. Very sweet. I liked it a lot too. It reminds me a lot of like kids' cartoons I love. And like, yeah. yes, like the so called message is like very simple, but mm-hmm. you know what's done so well and you feel it and it makes you feel emotions at the end of it. Yeah. And it's kind. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind movie. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. I talked about it on my summer roundup. But mm-hmm. Pavli is not as warm on it as you two are. I thought it was quite slight. <laughs> I thought it was too short. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's minor, but great. That's how I feel. Not enough for me. But what's there <laughs> yeah. is good. I just wanted a lot. Yeah. I just, I, I was going in wanting a lot more and I still wanted more. Mm-hmm. But that's not a bad thing to, to say about a movie. Like, just give me more of it. Yeah. Like, I didn't have enough. Maybe there'll mm-hmm. be a sequel. Marcel the Shell with two shoes on. Okay. I guess the last big theme we're going to cover is our big nostalgia memory movies. So a lot of directors going back to their childhoods, envisioning that something that my dear Terrence Davies knocked out of the park years ago and none of them had to do anything (laughs) to like, I don't care about your stories. He did it better. (laughs) (laughs) He's been doing it for a long time, honestly. And uh, Nobuhiko Obayashi does that in his whole filmography so glad these american directors are catching up and british directors my favorite term for this autobiographical mode of movie that has proliferated so much lately comes from another former classmate of ours keith christian side note keith has a new podcast which he co-hosts with our other former classmate ezra scott henning they're both brilliant guys and it's a really fun energetic and insightful show Highly recommend you listen to that as well. Anyway, Keith dubbed this style of autobiographical filmmaking me and the world movies. Mm. I like that term because it sort of implies 
an origin story of worldview or sensibility that appears mm -hmm. in other works from those directors. To add to that list from this year, it was The Fablemans, it was Armageddon Time, a small picture that I loved and I'll go into in a moment called The Cathedral. There was After Sun, arguably. Mm. I think the newest crop of this comes from Roma and everyone looking at Roma. Right. At Kenneth Branagh and being like, oh, black and white. <laughs> you could also loop in from this year, Bardo uh, or the something, right. something something about the subtitle. Ignorance, something. Some <laughs> something, something, subtitle. something I didn't see, something, something. Yeah. I don't know. Good for Darius Gonji, though. <laughs> Where do you guys land on these specific me and the world movies from this year? Maybe let's start with the Fablemans. It's continuing a trend from 2021. I haven't seen the Fablemans. It's not out yet. Oh, here. wait, Wilson, have you? Yeah, I love the Fablemans. Pretty great. After shitting on on this, I think Spielberg gets a pass because he made a really, really good one. <laughs> what about it makes it good? Like, you know? <sighs> it's hard. It's just the feeling. Like, because I like <laughs> as someone of like, who grew up like always interested in how things look and how things run and having that sort of like filmmaker oriented mind mm. i just immediately understood what little sammy fableman felt holding that camera and mm. um, shooting that train crash this toy trains the first time i was just like yes yeah. i get how that feels and i get how it pulls you in it's entrancing spielberg just captures that emotion so well and I think the family stuff is really well done. This whole like relationship that he has with his mom and that crucial scene where, oh, there's a lot of crucial scenes, but there's a scene um, in the middle of this film where his family's having an argument oh. and uh, Sammy's sitting at, on a, in the staircase looking at them. And then through the mirror, you see sammy not sitting anymore but actually holding a, a film camera and shooting this argument that's happening with his parents and the footage goes to 16 millimeter yeah that you're viewing and that thing sort of encapsulates the movie as a whole and his yep. desire to capture not only the the good things in life but also the pain that exists inside him it's just so beautiful. And also, like, I don't know, is Sammy Fableman a little gay? I don't know. It could be. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> For me, there's a very compelling and convincing honesty and authenticity in what Spielberg portrays about himself, but also that is heightened and somewhat fantastical in tone in that way that he is so known for, well-deservedly known for. The, yeah. That fascination with movie making from a young age is is like, oh, I, I recognize that. The Jewishness of it also feels very satisfying to me to see on screen, mm. particularly a scene with Judd Hirsch as an extended mm. uncle when he shows up at the house and talks to Sammy about life and art and family. Ugh, like, it's yeah. so, yeah. it's so delightful. Yeah. It's so delightful. It's a great one scene performance. Yeah. So many great one scenes as well. Like yeah. 40 for Jesus Girl. So fucking funny. Well, okay, I was going to say that my belief in the movie almost totally crumbles in the third act. Once the family moves to California and he enters mm. high school there and it becomes about this Jewish versus Gentile inauthenticity of standing behind a camera, popular versus unpopular kid, almost pat high school stuff. Yeah, it's amusing, but it doesn't hold as much water to me 
and it threatens to buckle the movie mm-hmm. in a way that I would link to how Ansel Elgort's presence in West Side Story <laughs> from last year almost threatens to buckle that movie, yeah. which I also think is similarly almost great except for that one key component. Mm. Yeah, I think that Spielberg wanted to keep like do the high school stuff just so we can get to that John Ford ending. Interesting. But I don't even buy that John Ford ending. It feels like a really weird again, like I love David Lynch great one scene performance, but that's a weird point to end on for a movie that so pointedly is about him and his family unit earlier in the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe too expansive for its own good. I think so. I think yeah. it would have done better to either skim through time at a clip as it does earlier in the movie or just focus on the years that he's with his family the most. Do we want to talk about Armageddon Time as well? I really loved Armageddon Time. Yeah. I know that Ben didn't feel as strongly about it, Mm -hmm. but to me, that movie really troubles itself and makes itself uncomfortable to watch in a lot of really unique ways. And it also portrays a childlike perspective where as opposed to what Cameron's doing and imbues that perspective with innocence Mm. Gray is making children complicit in the manner in which they're raised Mm -hmm. another Mm. really Jewish movie and that is really exciting to see that authenticity on screen for me particularly a New York Jewishness that my father grew up very close to I watched that movie with him and it was really fun to see him recognize a bunch of aspects of life shown on screen from his own youth. That's so sweet. I think one of the main things I was pushing against, I don't think the central child performance is extremely compelling. I agree. It's not great. He's not the best cast, I feel. I don't know. Like, like he's doing a a kind of shitty kid performance. (laughs) And I love a shitty kid in a movie. (laughs) But he's just not extremely compelling in that role. His screen presence is just not strong enough. I'm not not dunking this kid. He's a kid. But I just in the context of the movie, it's just not working for me. I think the conclusion it draws about white privilege and the way that he learns and contends with his privilege feels a little diminishing for the person that has to fall for him to make that learn that lesson. Yeah. Who is a person of color. And it just feels a little bit... Ugh. I don't really have a good argument for why, but it just doesn't feel right somehow. Yeah. My perhaps overly generous argument on that ending is that you're supposed to feel uncomfortable with the notes of resolution that it ends on till say ending (laughs) yeah especially that very ending i don't stand too firmly by this argument and i'm i could very easily be persuaded away from it but Mm. i think you're supposed to be a little skeptical of the self-placation that comes from his grandfather's mm. ghostly presence and from his father at the very end. Yeah. Sorry, Armageddon Times. Yeah. <laughs> I also had a similar issue with the movie, especially with the way the friend of the kid, the the black kid in it was portrayed prior to all the serious stuff that happens mm-hmm. at the third act of the film. Because I feel like when he is making a movie that is so concerned about white privilege... And that being the ultimate big lesson learned at the end of it, I don't think he really covered it to a he, full extent. He pulls and also, his punches a little bit, I feel. Yeah, he mm. pulls his punches a little bit. And then I also feel like this was sort of him patting himself on the back and being like, yeah, I, I did it. I, I, I made a movie about race. Good for me. I think he's trying to exhume something. I don't think he's patting himself on the back. But I think you can easily argue that he doesn't engage with it in a way that is 
satisfactory. Or not pat himself on the back, but some like I thought it was sort of like a forgiving myself for my past actions by making mm. this. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that. But I think I don't agree with that either. Uh, <laughs> but it definitely doesn't dig deep enough. Yeah. yeah, perhaps if you're if he's exhuming something from his past. Yeah, right. He's not going deep enough for him to really contend with it or like for us mm. to contend with it with him. Yeah. Right. He can be such a shitty kid and like he can be even yeah, shittier. Really can. And like we can see more of like how the parents enable that or like mm. or like his context enables that and how blind he is to that. I think there's just so much more. Now it just feels a little bit rudimentary mm. in terms of how he engages with it. Mm. Yeah. But I see the intention. So mm. I'm not like fully condemning it, but I see what he's trying to do. It's just not doing it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Last nostalgia movie that I want to quickly throw out there because it deserves more attention is The Cathedral from Ricky Dambrush. He's made a couple movies before this I haven't seen, but this is up on movie. It's a quick watch and the style of it is really unique. It's about his childhood growing up across the 80s, 90s, and early thousands. I think I can best describe this by saying it's almost a very architectural, geometric symmetrical movie in its construction on multiple levels in terms of like camera placement in terms of how people are filmed in terms of performance i think you could argue but it's very unique and it builds an archival footage in a way that contextualizes itself very purposefully and reminded me of shohei umemura's history of post-war japan as told by a bar hostess i really love these low-key personal lowercase h history movies mm. that span multiple decades it's a special movie really special almost in my top three for sure this sounds like such an eli movie yeah it, really <laughs> it is <does>. i'll admit <laughs> <laughs> all right i think that's all the trends we wanted to cover yeah we week. don't need yeah. to talk about sight and sound right no nah bye bye let's push on yeah. okay Let's talk about some of the big, big movies of the year that everyone. All the movies that are getting the most buzz, or like hitting the more more famous than us critics top ten lists. The discourse <laughs> movies, if you will. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Banshees of Inisherin. Which you just saw. This was the last movie I saw before. I saw it two days ago. Very lovely. Great performances all around. I think this is a really tight script. Simple story. Read more about it on my letterbox. Yeah, I thought it was a good time. I think definitely like a late stage McDonough kind of feel, low key. <laughs> I'm interested in the context of it being kind of an allegory of the Irish Civil War. Mm. And I don't know how much it matters. And I think the biggest criticisms of it are about what that allegory is trying to say. I have no idea the context. I don't know what it's trying to say. I kind of enjoy it from a very surface level about this friendship that's kind of being ripped apart for extremely petty reasons. Yeah. I, I really chuckled through the entire film. Like, they were just saying nothing and I was like laughing. <laughs> it's just like that kind of deadpan humor that Bagnana has always been good at and I think has not been better at since Embruge. Mm, yeah. I don't think he's really hit this kind of high since Embruge. Great movie. Feckin' Banshee. <laughs> Feckin' Banshees. <laughs> I was reading some Letterboxd review and saying that, oh, Inishirin just means... Ireland Island <laughs> which is really funny and I think part of why it's a film about Ireland it's like a microcosm film mm. that's how the allegory works yeah but anyway yeah. I feel obliged to drop that yes I've heard in particular from a writer who I've become enamored with this year named Frank Felici in his letterboxd review 
he writes that this movie gets the conflicts in Ireland and the UK pretty backwards. Mm. I don't know more than that. But that take did deter me from prioritizing that movie this year. Mm. I do like McDonough. He kind of showed his ass politically with three billboards, but <laughs> in Bruges is great. I think it's like, it doesn't really wear the allegory on its sleeve. Mm. Yeah, it's not very obvious. At least to me, I was like, very like, okay, these are people. Like, you could know nothing. And I think I went through the whole thing knowing that I'm sure there was something here, but like, I don't know anything and like, just like watch it on a surface level. Is that a good way of watching in that movie? I am not sure, but it's a way to watch it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Next movie is... Alphabetically. Who directed this? Who who directed it? Who who directed it? Matt Reeves. Matt Reeves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Matt Reeves is the Batman starring... The Batman. Robert Pattinson is our new Batman. This was my favorite superhero movie of the year. Same. Probably by a wide, wide margin. Same, yeah. Oh, it was the only superhero movie I saw of the year. But <laughs> it looks great. I think it's as challenging as a superhero movie today can be. Rob Pattinson is really great. I uh, mm. like builds tensions super well. The action set pieces are gorgeous to look at and just yeah. very well designed. If this is what is coming out every year from the DCEU, uh, I'm more than happy to claim that as the best superhero production company body. Very good stuff. <laughs> it's exciting. Did you have a favorite set piece, Wilson? I think the final stuff, when the center is like underwater and mm. the lights are out and it's like the red light, it's it's so gorgeous and beautiful. Mm. Like Expressive. It's so painterly, The some of the shots of it. it it's, yeah, just really, really damn good filmmaking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Greg Frazier... Is knocking it out of the park with this and, and the Dune um stuff that he's doing as well. Totally. Sorry, what's the DP's name again? Greek Fraser. Greg Fra oh, Greek? Oh, yeah. Greek. Greg. 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 <laughs> Greg. Greg Fraser. What? Greek Fraser. Greg Fraser. He is Australian, Fraser. right? Uh, yeah, he's Australian. Wait, maybe not. Yeah, he is. He is Australian. Yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, I agree. I think it's one of the better looking superhero movies that I've have been made yeah. in recent years. And I think the thing I talked about in our Zack Snyder Justice League episode was that <laughs> I just wanted a extremely serious movie, grim dark all the way. You got it. This shit is it, man. This is what I want. That's what you got. <laughs> you asked and they delivered. It, I think, tells me I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we should have wanted this whole time. And I think there's like this like corny genuineness to that seriousness, but you've yeah. just got to commit to it. Mm -hmm. You just have to commit to it. And even if it's like slightly like, if you take it out of context, it's just kind of funny. Sure. But when you're within the universe of this, you can just like get on the ride and just like believe in this kind of grimdark version of the Batman and like how serious he is, how emo he is. I just like that. Mm. It doesn't undercut itself. Exactly. The world is very consistent. Mm -hmm. yes it is and yeah. it's really scary i think my favorite set piece is the funeral oh. in which the district attorney is forced to drive a car into the procession yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's upsetting and really pretty dark yeah i think politically as i mentioned this movie toes the line up to challenging bruce's wealth and polit or perhaps lack of politics yeah very pointed lack of politics in the movie but it doesn't cross that line but i give it points for trying to i give it points for trying to 
Well, I think I view it as what you said about how this is as close as we're going to get mm. in a superhero movie to this kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next okay. thing. Yes. Uh, deep water, 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 deep water. Tell us more. Ben Affleck. <laughs> Anna to Armas. Everyone, all of you, <laughs> you're all wrong about Deepwater. This movie is smart. It knows what it's doing. It's a load of fun. It's hilarious. And it knows it. It's in on the joke. It is such a good erotic thriller. And it really has America's number right now. Adrian Line is back and no one recognized it. I cannot believe this movie got swept under the rug. That's all I have to say. It's great. Watch it. It's so much fun. Will do. I have not seen it. No idea. It's we'll so do. good. We'll Eli's do. probably right. He is probably right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of big movies that I didn't see this year. But... It's not a big movie. <laughs> well, this one got totally dropped on Hulu and dunked on by a few people, and then it went away. Shameful. <sighs> but I'm carrying yeah. the flag. Yeah, carry the flame of deep water. Okay. All right. Uh, Jordan Peele's newest. Nope. Yeah. Very good surprisingly snubbed completely snubbed by the oscars yeah shamefully (laughs) really shameful because i think outside of the big categories the craft in this is incredible i think it looks so good the sound design and the sound effects work is insane in this it's so good it's very impressive sounding and compelling horror movie i went in being like oh this is gonna rock my shit like it's gonna be so scary but like it was scary but i think it is more a movie about these family bonds and capturing a spectacle yeah movie making i was underwhelmed by it but i still respect it for a very novel approach to a monster movie Mm. yeah because essentially it's a monster movie about taking a picture not about killing a monster but taking a picture and i think no one has made adaptation of Pokemon Snap yet, so I don't think that that's a thing. So this is the first of its kind, so great. <laughs> like, maybe the closest, I don't is that a Bigfoot movie? I guess that's kind of like a Bigfoot movie, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I think I, I give Peel kudos for like where his mind goes mm. and like the ideas that he has, you know, and it's very original in that sense. Kind of the current heir to Michael Crichton in terms of the best premise writer in Hollywood mm. and possibly best concept executor in hollywood yeah he also continues to excel with casting and getting great performances with suspense and building tension in his direction and editing and as wilson says all the below the line stuff is just impeccable especially a film about below the line people basically totally yeah (laughs) that's true i also think that the gordy sequence is probably my favorite scene of the year mm. from a new movie it's just so unnerving and captures mm. everything that the movie is trying to do thematically in that one bubble in on the topic of theme i think it's pretty scattershot and jordan peele does a lot of table setting but doesn't actually serve the meal of theme to belabor yeah. this analogy yeah i i still think it's really good and even if the theme doesn't totally come together into an argument, it's great. And the other thing that I want to see more of is it bisects itself between the Steven Yeun character and the main family. And yeah. I don't feel the family bond enough between Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya. And Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah. I think that <sighs> is the main thing that's missing. That bisection is just 
strange because like you need a movie like this to really be very yeah. very cohesive and coherent yeah and perspective oriented but i think it's intentional in a way that i don't understand like i just don't get it but i know i think there is a meaning behind it because there's no way that he would just do that no there's a thematic coherence well the way that they're pitted against each other feels thematically purposeful but that comes at the cost of really solidifying that sibling bond that mm. i yes. don't feel here I just kind of want to watch this Gordy thing as its own movie. That's kind of how I feel. Right. I'd be down for that. Right. Like a different version of this, maybe from a perspective of Gordy could have been interesting as well, or Whoa. a version of it without him. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's a different movie entirely. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to figure out what's wrong here for me, but yeah, mm. still solid. Gen yeah, generally. totally. And I want more peel. Give me more peel. Always want more peel. Give him more money. Next. Next movie. Northman. Big disappointment in my book. Say. Scared to see it. Uh, Robert Eggers also needs more money, but needs Final Cut. They took Final Cut away from him. They compromised the movie. And it really shows. It really, really shows. Oh, such a shame. It's not weird enough. Such a shame. That's right, Ben. Yeah. It's just not weird enough. Yeah. Also, I don't think the leads have any chemistry. It's not working for me. Totally. Yep. Okay, next, next movie. <laughs> Ta -ta. Oh boy, cracking knuckles. Toddy fails. This is the last film I saw for 2022. Saw it late last night. I was underwhelmed, guys. Uh, and I was like ready to love this. I love Kate Blanchett. I am so on the opposite side of what people seem to like about this and also what mm. Field seems to want to do with it. Mm. Very confusing. I, I was very confused to my response to it and throughout what I thought was a very long runtime was investigating... Yeah. <laughs> As I was watching why I did not really like it. I was like, ugh. It's kind of a flummoxing movie because it's dressing itself up in a lot of panache and things that, I don't know, you said it best in your letterbox review. You said something like subtlety does not equate to, to nuance. nuance or complexity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Like, I don't see what people are seeing in this. And like, yeah, it's a subtle movie. Yeah, he's not doing a blockbuster he's not doing like a simple straightforward character study that you would expect it's like a fake biopic but it doesn't <laughs> it's not made like a fake biopic but i was not even especially enthralled by the blanchett performance oh and that's just something i can't tell you why i just like i was not and i think mm. part of that was i think she was a bit underserved by the cinematography of this mm. the way that he frames her and the choices that he makes with the camera doesn't help the performance because this is a film about something very subtle but he doesn't get you close enough to capture the subtlety in what's going on with tar and the times that he chooses to be like here is it big are not that interesting to me so i i don't know this is a conversation i don't know how to have considering the immensely positive critical reception it's got hmm. right. i'm just like in the middle here and just find it strange mm. i also find it hard to fully wrap my head around there are some things about it though that I come away with really appreciating. I mentioned earlier that this movie's very deliberate use of sound and impeccable craft with sound got me thinking in just my day-to-day -day life about all the different sounds that I'm hearing during the day. And mm. if a movie can stick with me in that kind of way, I am grateful for it. Yeah. One thing that someone said... This might have been Fran Hopner who said this. I'm citing a lot of people in our episode today. I, I have no original ideas. I believe Fran said there are three movies within Tar. 
and I think mm. it's to its detriment. Mm. There's oh. the biopic, there's the cancel movie, and there's the horror movie. Mm. I think the horror movie doesn't work here. I agree. Things going bump in the night, the scene with the dog, I buy that stuff the least. Yeah. And I don't really know what its function is, and he doesn't want to engage with it. He leaves it extremely open-ended, and I don't like it when films obfuscate for the sake of just not telling you. Mm. And I'm like, then why did you tell me anything in the first place? Just don't tell me. I suppose you could argue that it's asking you to form an opinion about Lydia Tarr, but there's enough in there that feels like it is swaying strongly to one side or the other. Interesting. That mm. I maybe wind up in a similar place to you, Ben, where I'm not quite sure what to do with this object in the end. I don't know if the film has anything to say about Tar. Maybe not. Maybe it does, but is it really just a film that's like, open-ended make your own opinion which i'm like always a bit suspicious of because what do you mean you don't have an opinion on this of course you have an opinion on this tell me your opinion <laughs> and then let me contend with it because mm-hmm. i mean even subtextually there obviously it has an opinion about tar mm. yeah or abuses of power in general yeah of course mm. no one's gonna be like yeah make your own opinion about whether that's good or bad like of course it's bad <laughs> <laughs> it's bad but i guess it's asking do you still feel pity or Maybe. cringe or what have you yeah i don't know like it's framed in a very strange way i don't mm. know tough yeah. not to crack still excited to catch it you should watch definitely it. still worth watching yeah i didn't have enough time last night i thought that was going to be the the one that i hit yesterday but it's long <laughs> i saw the runtime and i was like yeah. i'm scared i felt it <laughs> during the moments especially the start where it was like a bit more quiet sometimes i was just like listening to all the popcorn around me <laughs> <laughs> It takes a while to reveal what the game of the movie is. Yeah. I love when you describe a movie as a game, though. That's that's nice. That's nice. It is a game movie, for sure. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, okay. I'm in. I'm sold. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I, think, I don't think I thought about it that way. Well, like, it became a game after a while when I was like not sure what it was. <laughs> mm. Another game movie, but the game is Life and Death and War. It is Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> pew, pew. Uh, by Joseph Kosinski, I think a very, very solid action film. Tom Cruise proves once again that he is the king of American action blockbusters. Hmm. I don't feel as emotionally compelled by this. I think similar to our conversation about RRR, but I think being more aware while watching this uh, that this is just part of the military complex yeah like i know you're supposed to get like riled and pumped up for this i just didn't feel as pumped up it was maybe the empty screening or just i'm just thinking about the american military it's just it was not i i yeah but i think it's a well done action film it's nothing against the film i just didn't Mm. have the response that i think most people were oh they desired you to have while watching this yeah i think the kind of blandness of its context mm. of its military like thing it's like very hollywood but also like is what kind of makes it a little boring to me mm. yeah it looks great i watched it in imax i think and i think yeah it's not exciting to think about yeah like the same way i'm excited about mission impossible i'm just yeah. like all right Ooh. come on give it to me unburdened by context <laughs> yeah exactly because th- that's essentially a fantasy movie right? right like this is not really a fantasy maverick movie. is trying its best to be unburdened by context because of its like unnamed evil country villain right but 
it's just hard. I'm just like, this is this is the military. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Finally, in the big awardsy, buzzy, obligatory mention movies, White Noise, which is a book that I read earlier in the year, getting really into Don DeLillo, quickly becoming one of my favorite authors. I don't particularly love the book of White Noise, but its prose style is very fascinating. And I wound up really liking the story more in its movie format. Mm. Good movie, weird, wonky at points, but earnest in a way that the book is not. I also totally see what people are not responding to in the movie. I don't begrudge Mm. any disfavorable opinions on White Noise, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I I did enjoy it. I'm I'm excited to watch it because I, I always feel like I land on the more warmer side than most people when receiving a Baumbach picture. Mm. The, the only thing I know about it is it's about a Nazi professor, but um, or a professor about Na- a professor that teaches about Nazis. He's not a Nazi himself. He founded this field called Hitler Studies, <laughs> which the thematic and symbolic potency of that is you could run in a million directions right. with that. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Good movie. Cool. I will. Um, I, I'm still excited to watch it. I still like Bombac in general. And Driver is always compelling to watch. The way he moves his body is so specific to each movie he's in and each character he's performing. He moves with such grace. Greta Gerwig, I have to mention, also gives the performance of the movie. She is so specific and expands on her character in ways that i don't feel exist in the book really Mm. earnest and full performance gerwig about to take over the world Mm, barbie barbie i'm so excited excited about barbie what the fuck it's kind of ridiculous statement (laughs) okay movies that we didn't want to talk about Maybe we'll just cover them really quickly. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. Did you guys see The Whale? No, I don't no, want to. Don't want Worst to. Worst movie of the year for me. That it was boring. <laughs> that was bland. It was disrespectful to obese people. IMO. Uh, the only statement grace there is Brendan um, Fraser's performance, which I am glad is getting a lot of heat behind it. But the movie itself, a dud. I don't think good performances and bad movies should get nominations. That's my hot take. I agree, though. I don't yeah. disagree. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. yeah. 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 I didn't want to watch Bones and All because I am out on Luca Guadagnino. Oh. I think Suspiria has broken me. <laughs> I'm done. Goodness. Do not want to watch. No, actually, I, I take that back. David Kajganish, the screenwriter that he works with, from maybe Call Me By Your Name partially on. That guy wrote the first season of The Terror, which is a good season of TV. He worked on Call Me By Your Name, which is good, but they took away Merchant's screenwriting credit, which is, frankly, a crummy thing to do. Mm. Then they wrote Suspiria, which is a bad, bad movie. Notoriously <laughs> online, I'm known for not liking that movie. Yeah. It's my most read piece of writing. Most known for They it. keep on working together. Guadagnino, find a different writing partner. Just focus on your directing, which you're good at. He's so good at it. And it shows in this film, I think. Yeah. It's good Guadagnino. It's not great Guadagnino. The performance I want to shout out. Oh, I don't know. Stuhlbarg? Not Stuhlbarg. Russell? <laughs> yeah, it is probably Taylor Russell. Because 
yeah, Shao Mei's great, but Russell really carries this movie, and she has to. Mm. She's really capable of doing that. I loved her in Waves, so I was waiting for mm. like a big film break for her, and I think this is the one. It feels a little less passion-filled than um, uh, yeah. other Guadagnino films, and I think that was what I severely needed there, mm. and that's why I couldn't call it a great Guadagnino film, but it has all of his like filmmaking flares that I enjoy, so I'm glad I caught it. Bones and All also sounds like the name of a medication. Ask your doctor about Bones and All if you're experiencing cannibalistic urges. <laughs> That's all a sponsor spot. Yes. <laughs> and back from that commercial break, we are here to talk about our honorable mentions of the year. Films that nearly made our top three, but didn't quite make our top three. And some shout outs as well. Before we get into our personal favorites, we would like to shout out a few films from a couple of directors that we've covered on the pod previously on our ongoing series, Deep Cut Upkeep. So... We had the absolute pleasure to talk about and talk with Fred Wiseman about his newest film, A Couple. So please check those episodes out. We also had our dear friend Than Mailagadu back on the podcast to talk about Mani Ratnam's new film, Pony and Sylvan Part 1. And we will have him back on this year, in maybe in a couple of months, actually, to talk about Part 2 of this big historical epic finally coming to a close. I didn't know it was that soon. Yeah. It's coming very, very soon. It's coming. Cool. We also got to talk with dear friend of the podcast and director Andrew Ahn about his newest film that came out on Hulu. Fire Island is the name. It is a great rom-com. Maybe even the best rom-com of the year. <laughs> I don't think so. I saw any Ooh. better rom-coms of the year. It was so funny so gay, very lovely movie. That's the one that you should go check out if you haven't out of those movies. Also, maybe the best shot rom-com in recent memory. So warmly filmed. Mm, uh, yeah. Lovely movie. Good stuff. And yeah, lots of love to Andrew as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And upcoming upkeeps that a couple of us have seen. So please check out those episodes when we get to it. The new film by Hirokazu Koreeda. Broker is the name. <laughs> and maybe a little talk about his new TV show, which I'm halfway through. Oh, Me yeah. too. <laughs> uh, very interesting stuff. As well, the big movie that we haven't talked about yet, but we have to talk <laughs> about soon. And we will, because we have, and it's not edited yet. <laughs> it is RRR from... SS Roger movie, which took the Western world by storm this year. Just keep an eye out for our episode. We are diving deep into this movie that was actually on my in my top three, but dropped out after our conversation. <laughs> yeah. <Wow. laughs> Sorry. Yeah. My bad. No, it's all good. That's all the movies that we've covered on our Deep Cut Upkeep episodes this year. We will continue to do this as the movies from directors that we've covered on the podcast continue to come out. So keep an eye out. On to our honorable mention. How are we going to do this, guys? I'll go first and say that we have talked about all my honorable mentions because I saw <laughs> not a ton of movies this year. Which is great. That's fine. It's really, really good. But I'll double underline The Cathedral, Armageddon Time, Avatar The Way of Water, Marcel the Shell, Deep Water, 
And I'll also throw a bone to white noise. Really good. Mm. Okay, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna start. So with yeah. my honorable mentions, I've sort of grouped them around a few categories to make them easier to talk about. And the first category I'm gonna um, touch on is the kids are all right. These are two movies, Mabel Chung's documentary that has only been released in Hong Kong, but hopefully will will have a more wider release called "To My 19 Year Old Self." And to my 19-year-old self is a documentary that covers it's it was commissioned by Chung's alma mater, her high school. Um, and it covers six years where they picked freshmen, or maybe it's pre pre-freshmen. In in Hong Kong, secondary school is sort of a mash of middle school and high school. So she picked mm-hmm. a group of freshman girls to to cover as they went on through the years of high school and middle school and how their lives changed, how their priorities changed, and how Hong Kong changed around them. Mm. In its conception, I don't think they were thinking of it to be as important or speak to so much as it actually did. And it sort of had this cumulative effect like Boyhood has of watching these people grow up on screen in front of us but also as being someone who has been so close in age to these girls and sort of experiencing what happened politically in Hong Kong as these girls had also just going through life with them. It made me really emotional just watching these stories on screen. And I felt so connected to each of them. And I was so lucky to attend a screening with a post-screening Q&A with Chung herself, who's prior um, romance drama films I really really enjoyed so it was really such a honor that I was able to see it and see her as well that sounds great yeah really good movie definitely put it on your watch list check it out will do and the second movie in this the kids are all right group that I am talking about is Teenage Emotions. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is on um, Mubi, I think. In some regions. Yes. It is a film that's directed by Frederick Da. I want to shout out dear friend of the podcast, Alex Fabry, for writing a brief review of this on Letterboxd and putting this movie mm. on my radar. But basically, this is Romare for the Modern Age with kids. Shot on iPhone. Shot on iPhones. My kids. Frederick Da was, to my knowledge, was employed by the school as a film teacher. And during this stint as a teacher at the school, he proposed to these kids to make a movie about their lives. So it was a collaborative effort between Da and the children who wrote parts of the screenplay. They filmed during their lunch breaks and recess breaks. They really cobbled this movie together, I think, right before COVID hit. Mm. I think COVID sort of cut this movie short. Yeah. But in yeah. its summation, it is a really, really wonderful film about these interactions and how being a teen can sometimes be the hardest thing ever <laughs> because it fucking is. It's <laughs> genuineness. Like, I don't think I've seen something so close to actual, like, teenage emotions or feelings that i've had Mm. like i don't think i've ever seen something like that i think the closest would be like stop (laughs) this feels so real and in your face and these conversations that the kids are having feel so natural 
And even though they're not directly connected to each other, I didn't really care because I just loved spending time with them and being there with them. And I'm glad that Ben also saw this film and can see yeah. how great of a movie it is mm. and how special it is. It's just about the genuineness of the interactions they're having. And he has a bunch of groups of kids who kind of each group is about something different about the teenage experience within the high school context. Mm. The fact that they're all kind of exploring different things, it doesn't feel repetitive between the different groups. Like you have things about friendship, about young romance. You got things about like masculinity. You know what I mean? Like it's all like, pointing towards something that could have really been great if he was able to kind of finish it as envisioned. That's like the biggest shame when you watch it. You're like, if this could have like just run its course to like, to really complete its ideas, this would have been like an incredible movie. But then even as it is now, like those individual scenes are already so special. Yeah. Like watching the kids like talk or like the way that they kind of like say shit, but then like, are like there's a lot of subtext happening when they're like saying stuff mm -hmm. and they're just like talking a lot of nonsense but then you know exactly what's on their mind because mm. first of all the cinematography in this is terrible but <laughs> functional in such a interesting way because it's just iphone shots it's all close-ups it's all almost just like there like in your face and the frame rate is not great i don't know what's going on 30 dp but it lets you see what's going on when they're talking to each other and i think that works it really suggests what is going on within their heads even as they're just talking with their friends just kind of like about random stuff yeah really strong and i think the fact that it's written by these kids it sounds really authentic to its current time which is like teenagers in the 2020s yeah really a deep cut film yeah check it out i'm just gonna piggyback on your category the kids are all right to talk about girl picture because you also mm. mentioned Scum. Girl Picture is also a Scandinavian <laughs> film about young people in love. I actually do not know if they're in high school. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how old they are. I think they're in high school. But it's impossible to tell because they're like too mature for their age. It's one of the films that to me is not especially special or novel or whatever. But the story is simple. But the emotions really work for me. It's done in a almost like a Sundance way. We kind of like talked about this. But I think it just works and made me feel all things and it's just about mm. young love and about best friends definitely in my best friend cinema canon best oh. friend canon great list i just really enjoyed it and then uh it brought me on this emotional experience and the acting between the three leads the three women is so strong because they all embody different kinds of young uh, adult women who are like, mm. trying to figure out their lives and like what they're doing yeah it just works and i really liked it uh, oh, just to say, the director of Girl Picture is Ali Hapasalo. It's from Finland. Another film that kind of falls under this Kids Are All Right umbrella was a film I saw at the Singapore Film Festival, which is Under the Fig Trees by first-time narrative director, I think, Erige Sahiri. It's a Tunisian film. I think the only mm. Tunisian film I've ever seen. It's fairly lo-fi in terms of, like, its production, but it's really just about a bunch of young men and women working as uh, fig pickers in a plantation. And then they're all young and flirting with each other and talking. It was such a nice time. Mm. Really kind of like gets to the root of what they're about. Actually, very interesting companion to Girl Picture, which is just talking about in terms of like what it's about. It's really just about young women talking about what their futures are going to be and like how they want to find love or like what they want to do with their lives. And really nice and like breezy kind of watch. Uh, mm. One of the kind of underrated gems, I think, from the festival. Sweet. Okay. 
my next category <laughs> that I'm gonna go on is personal histories. Mm. I think this is a sort of broad category, but I wanted to uh, group these films together. So there are three movies that I'm gonna talk about that uh, in this category. And the first movie is a director that I think I've sort of like been hyping myself up to getting to in my movie watching, but because of the sheer length and tone of his films, I think I needed a push. And I think because two of his films, two of Lav Diaz's films, played at Hong Kong Asian Film Festival this year, I sort of started my Lav Diaz journey. Out of the two films I saw, one being The Seven Hour, A Tale of Filipino Violence, and this more digestible two and a half hour, When the Waves Are Gone, I appreciated um, When the Waves Are Gone more. And this film is incredibly bleak and powerful. It is a film that chronicles the two characters during the years of Rodrigo Duterte's rule over the Philippines and his decidedly very violent stance that he put against drug users and drug dealers in the country, where he basically let citizens conduct killings for him of drug pushers, as he would call them, um, on their own, um, and they would just get away scot-free, which has led to devastating consequences. When the Waves Are Gone sort of chronicles two cops in this world of Duterte's Philippines and their descent into hell as they come to terms with their own lives and the decisions that they've made, but also one cop has it out for the other and wants to kill him. Um, It is a slow burn, but so highly engaging. The performances in this are fantastic. Mm. The two-hander at the middle of this movie of John Lloyd Cruz and Ronnie Lazaro are probably two of my favorite performances of this year. It is shot in 16 millimeter black and white, which has been a first for Diaz and his cinematographer, who were happy to return to their film school roots to shoot this. Very, very good stuff. Uh, if you're into the slow Asian cinema kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> Another slow-ass movie that I saw very recently, this is the second last film that I saw before we recorded this episode, um, is this film called Trenke Laukin by Argentinian director Laura Citarella. So this is a four-hour and 20-minute movie. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> by Citarella, who produced La Flor, which oh. is the infamous 14-hour Argentinian movie and stars one of the film's stars, but where La Flor is divided into different stories, Trenke Lauken covers multiple mysteries in this town called Trenke Lauken. These mysteries are all connected in a sense, and Trenke Lauken is split into 12 chapters and each chapter sort of covers a different perspective and we dip and dive into different mysteries. I love how this movie and LaFleur are so concerned with this idea and tradition of storytelling, like relaying a story to another person. There's a lot of monologues in this movie where characters talk for like 20 minutes on end talking about a story that turns into a flashback with a narration over it. Hmm. It is not serious at all. Like, I think it's quite light on its feet. I think the performances are all stellar. 
the way the movie is able to shift between a love story, a sort of murder mystery or like a missing person mystery into like a a tale that is about a sci-fi monster is something that is so well done. The adaptiveness of the tone and the direction is something that I'm super, super impressed with. These movies that are made, I think it's this one production company in Argentina that are made for basically like dirt dirt cheap like i don't th- like this is very like lo-fi filmmaking these films that are able to tell a really compelling narrative through four and a half hours of of film is something that's so incredible and worth checking out i really came across this on a whim and very very glad that i caught this so this is thank you by laura citarella hmm. and Okay, <laughs> the last movie that I'm talking about in this personal histories section is Davy Chow's Return to Seoul. Woo! <laughs> One of the most moving yes. character studies of the year. It talks about uh, this girl named Freddie, who is a French adoptee who was born in Korea, who returns to Korea on a whim as well, mm-hmm. but ends up trying to like reconnect with her family and her roots and we sort of jump around in time to see how her and her relationship to her motherland changes through the years. I watched this after spending some time in uh, the titular city, uh, some important time in the city. Although our stories don't align, I felt very similarly to the way that uh, Park Jimin's Freddie feels a lot during this film and mm. i think it really spoke to me on a very very deep level and her performance is this is a first time performance and it is mm. outstanding it is incredible it is spellbinding i am so enamored by this performance in this movie mm. yeah check it the fuck out check it the fuck out <laughs> this is one of my highlights from the singapore film festival it was so strong in terms of the way that the character shifts and morphs through the kind of three times that she returns to Seoul. It's not just one return to Seoul, it's actually three returns to Seoul. Yeah. And then she keeps going back and then the character changes. And even though she is a very different person each time, the core of Freddy feels very palpable and feels yeah. unchanged between the three visits to Seoul. And I really like the kind of like structural game or like structural conceit you have for this kind of like character profile pieces. Mm. It allows you to kind of connect dots between the three different Freddies that you see and like how she shifts between that growth as a character and a person. The performance is, as you said, Wilson, spellbinding and so compelling to watch, especially the first time you meet Freddy. You're like, who is this person? I need to know everything about her. <laughs> like the very first scene. Fucking powerhouse. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I'm in. Fuck. That like carries through the entire film. And he he goes to some like dark, like literally dark places and like this like <laughs> underground clubbing scene. It's like really, really compelling. Yeah. Return to is great. I took a picture of Davy Cho, but I don't know where it is. Yeah. <laughs> he was holding a baby, but anyway. Davy with baby? <laughs> Davy baby. Great fucking movie. Okay, we're on to my last category. I feel like I've yeah. been talking so much. Yes, um, there's a lot of you, Wilson, right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's fine. We like you. I loved a lot of movies. It's a couple highlights of queer cinema that I watched this year. First being Benediction Terrence Davies' newest film. I spent the year really getting into Davies' work. 
And Benediction was one of the last films of his that I caught this year. And wow, what a triumph. His biopic of Siegfried Sassoon is unlike a lot of historical biopics I've ever seen. It really jumps around in his life and is Mm. sort of tonally structured rather than super chronologically structured. And it jumps between him as a young man being out or not out, but like living his queer life and his interactions with his friends and then it also covers later in his life where he became a devout christian family man which is very interesting but throughout this whole film there's an overlying sense of post-war fatigue and Mm. sadness and depression davies does such a brilliant job of navigating through all these themes and emotions and delivering something that is very very moving Loved, loved, loved that movie. Jack Loudon does a great performance in Benediction. Yeah. Like I think yeah. rightfully, I think people are talking about it a little bit. And, but I think it's really one of the stronger performances of the year. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's not to explain why. It's just, it feels very... There's so much in the eyes. It's just clear. It's just clear, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much in the way that Terrence Davies uses music um, in his films. And I do really want to explore his filmography at length in the future. Mm. I'll also plug Fran Hoffner's essay on Brightwell Dark Room about Benediction. Really great read. Ooh. I haven't read it, so I'm definitely going to check it out. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. Yeah. And the second movie being Joyland by Saim Sadiq. And this is about a man who belongs to a very traditional um, family in Pakistan who's married and he gets a job as a background dancer um, for a, a trans performer at an erotic show. And uh, he subsequently falls for the erotic dancer. And what you expect from a typical queer love story sort of turns its head and expands mm. in devastating consequences. Mm. It is a turn that I didn't expect. Mm. But the more that I think about it and the more that it sits with me, it feels right. Aside from the narrative, I think there are so many strong directorial stylistic choices there in support of all the emotion that's going on in the film. So something from an indie filmmaker that usually to me would be like flashy and I would dismiss it. In this film, I think that all the choices are really well informed and moving. Hmm. Very good choices. Yeah, I saw. I caught Joyland as well. Definitely very strong. I think visually it was very strong. I think you said that it was like doing a little bit too much, but I kind of enjoyed it in terms of the way that it was like doing something different with a lot of its different scenes. But I think a very strong uh, entry in like queer cinema canon or something. Mm-hmm. Also a big face movie anyway. <laughs> Massive face movie. <laughs> big face, big body movie. Yeah. <laughs> BFBB. Big face, big body. Yes, we got it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we got to talk about the Park Chan Wookiee. Sorry? Park Chan Wookiee. Yeah, I think Decision to Leave was one of the films that really fell out of my top three, just very barely. Mm. I think one of the stronger Park Chan Wookiee movies in recent memory. Actually, His last I mean, movie Handmaid- was The Handmaid. Wait, was really good. No way. Ignore me. But I think it's a very interesting update on like what Park is doing mm. uh, with his filmmaking. And I think a very modern sensibility, which I did not expect from him. Yeah. It was very convoluted, a bit confusing, but I really enjoyed my time in the theater watching this. Really excited to see what he does after this. 
I don't think it's like a masterpiece or anything, although a lot of people seem to think it is, which is fine. Yeah, I, get, I, I give you that. <laughs> but I'm kind of excited to see what he does after this with this kind of like new like energy and new life. It yeah. feels like he's going to do something really big after it. So well directed. He's really like firing on all cylinders here. The cinematography in this is insane. Like what's going yeah. on? Like, yeah. yeah. In terms yeah. of like technology and like how slick it feels, I don't think I've seen a slicker movie this year. Hmm. Then as a pair... There's Jafar Panahi's No Bears, as well as his son, Panah Panahi's Hit the Road, which are about very similar things, about people trying to get out of countries. Uh, mm. Both very different approaches to the subject, but also very strong. Panah Panahi has a very strong debut with Hit the Road, and you saw this too, Wilson. And yeah. it just it feels like a very like young, energetic, exuberant movie, mm-hmm. but in a very like almost iranian style mm. which i really cannot explain i mean you got people in cars yeah <laughs> that's like very iranian for some reason but the way that he does it in an extremely subtle way he doesn't really tell you exactly why they need to get this family's older son out of the country yes. but then it's just about this journey one of the best shit kids in movies oh the <laughs> so best annoying. shit kid so oh my annoying, god but so funny what a doofus yeah and no bears is the movie i think about maybe the most of the year hmm. it is a very interesting construction i don't know why but the iranians are like the masters in terms of like deconstructing how you construct cinema hmm. and no bears is another one of those and jabal panahi plays himself in the film about a director making a movie remotely because he's under house arrest (laughs) or something making a movie in turkey i think when he's across the border and then like it is about itself it's about panahi's own role in making films It's about how he feels about himself about how he feels about his imprisonment it is a very interesting film to think about and i honestly don't really have the language to talk about or to sell this movie to you but it has one of the best opening shots in cinema from 2022. Mm. Honestly, that's about it. I don't want to talk about Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will talk about Babylon. I just want to say that it's not like my favorite movie of the year, but like I was surprised that I liked it. <laughs> Extremely surprised. I'm kind of interested to see what Giselle does next. Mm. It's very energetic filmmaking. It's like a bit too much sometimes, but I really enjoyed it. I think the stars in this all put in good performances and... Mm. I had a good time with it. And yes, it's singing in the rain fan fiction, but uh, it was fun. Like, it's not especially deep, but yeah, like... I love singing in the rain. It's sad that it's like a big flop, but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. That's all I want to say. Before we do our top three, I will break our format and mention two short films from last year that I really loved and which I count among my favorite cinema of the year. So the first is Return to Sender, by friend of the show, past and future guest, Russell Goldman, who was just on our Sundance 2022 Dispatch episode and previously was on our Zack Snyder's Justice League episode. His short, Return to Sender, which he wrote, stars Alison Tolman in the role of a woman who is being creepily marked in a brushing scam in which she is being sent packages full of goods that she did not purchase. It gets closer and closer to home and more and more paranoid. Russell does a great job of ratcheting up the tension both in the script and in his direction and editing. It is a banger of a thriller. You can watch it on his website, www.russellgoldman.com. Two S's, two L's in Russell. And the other short that I want to mention, directed by a director who goes by George Matthews, is called Low Tide, a newly restored work by Thomas Wright, 
and its accompanying short, which is of the same name, but with the parenthetical DLC, as in downloadable content. Mm. These are two shorts about a fictional filmmaker who lived in the mid-20th century and made video diary-like shorts about his vacation in North Carolina. And so the story goes, these shorts were lost and now are being restored by an organization called Artifacture Labs, which is the website where you can watch the DLC. Aside from the gnome de plume of Thomas Wright and the creation of that figure, these are just really pleasant and watchable and enjoyable shorts, very peaceful, Mm -hmm. full of really ticklish and enjoyable writing of the voiceover that Thomas Wright says in the short. And the DLC in particular features my favorite edit of the year, which is a cut from something like 28 seconds of A Cloud in the Sky to four levels of a parking garage that are blue painted and kind of rusting. There is a world of content within that single cut. I think it's quite skilled filmmaking. Both of those are shorts that I really enjoy and were among my favorite movies of the year. Great. Thanks for shouting them out, Eli. And here it is. Drum roll, please. <laughs> it is the top three movies of 2023. <laughs> so we are going to start out with all our threes. Who wants to go first? This is like the most scary top three I've ever done for some reason. <laughs> I propose we go in order of the names that we say at the top of the episode. Jesus Christ. Wilson, Ben, <laughs> Eli. Okay. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. Or... No, we. I'm happy to. I'm happy to. We could go to. alphabetically, Ben, Eli, Wilson. You just don't want to go first, Eli. <laughs> or alphabetically by last name. So, Eli... No, wait, that's Wilson. <laughs> Wilson, Eli, Ben. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go. Okay. Okay. So, okay. my number three film of 2023 was also a film that I found while digging for, for movies to watch before our episode. And this is a documentary by Alex Pritz that uh, debuted at Sundance last year and it got picked up by um, National Geographic and it is called The Territory. Hmm. Territory is a documentary that I think is ever so important in our day and age when we talk about global warming and the climate crisis and its effect on Native people and Indigenous people in different parts of the world. The Territory is a film about the indigenous Uru-e-Wawa tribe in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Pritz and his team went over there and shot for, I think, around three years from around 2017 to the pandemic in 2020. He covers their side of the story where they live on protected land that is slowly being encroached on by loggers and farmers and people who want to develop their land because they feel like they have their right to that land. Not only does Pritz cover the Udo El Wawa people as they struggle to defend their land and call on the government to help support them, but also at the Udo El Wawa's request, they also covered and shot the loggers that were destroying the land as well and illegally destroying the land. It is really powerful and devastating cinema. 
And if there's anything that you need to watch this year that reflects the urgency of what is going on in the world, this is it. I was crying from 30 minutes in and just basically did not stop till the end because these people just want to live their lives as they are used to. They're people coming in and these other people's idea of right to land is just destroying people's way of lives is devastating. I'm so glad that Pritz has brought these stories to life. A big concern that I had while watching this was that Pritz is a director from New York. He's a white man and he's coming in and Mm. telling these stories for them. And that is an issue that I've had with documentary filmmaking and like the ethics and morals of, of, of making these movies about underprivileged people. But after listening to interviews afterwards and what happens in the, the third act of this film, I was incredibly moved and respected Kritz's approach to making this movie. Um, he consulted them very heavily before making this movie and explained to them what a documentary film is and asked them how they would want to be portrayed in this film. And mm. something happens in the third act of the film where the young new leader of the tribe decides to take matters into his own hands and fight back at the illegal loggers. And because of COVID, Fritz was not able to shoot the documentary himself there and send people because he didn't want to infect the tribe with COVID. And that was an issue that was very big for them at that moment. Like something really magical happens in the last act of this movie. Hmm. These people, when they choose to fight for themselves, they arm themselves with bow and arrows, like their classic weapons, but also they arm themselves with drones and they arm themselves with video cameras. Basically taking their story into their own hands. I'm getting so emotional (laughs) talking about it, but just... I think the power they get from holding the video camera and shooting the story and their fight themselves is something that is so incredibly, incredibly moving. I was just so taken aback, surprised by this turn and so appreciative of it and using cinema to fight back in this very like palpable way. Hmm. Nothing else comes close to it. And I think that is why documentary filmmaking continues to be like one of the most important forms of artwork in the entire world Mm. and that is my big spiel on alex pritz's the territory beautifully said it sounds pretty interesting and you can find it on disney plus i'm finding out huh yes yes it is on disney plus right now like for us singapore hong kong and other places i'm not sure where else but yeah check it the fuck out very good important documentary to watch Okay, my number three is complicated (laughs) because this evening I started watching a movie that I'm 90% certain is going to bump my current number three out of its slot. Okay. So if that's the case, I'm going to record a pickup later and I will drop it in this spot here. Hi. So... I was right, maybe even so right, that this is my number two movie of the year. But because I watched it split up, I will leave it at three for now. What I watched was Il Buco, 
directed by Michelangelo Framartino, and it's an Italian movie about a group of spellologists who, in 1961, explore what winds up being the third deepest cave in the world, which is set nearby this Italian village, I believe in the south countryside of Italy. The movie splits itself between these lush, above-ground fields and the town, specifically following an old shepherd, and the underground exploration of this group of spelunkers. What a movie! It's kind of a perfect movie. It's so chill and nice to be in this movie and to be in nature. On Letterboxd, I sincerely compared it to both Frederick Wiseman for its focus on the process of people and these small groups of individuals that we get to observe in those processes, and Minecraft because of how you are in nature and it's very calming, and there's also the joy of discovery of going through caves. And there are multiple moments when I found myself gasping and giggling with delight at how they, with limited 1961 technology, explored the caves or how the animals in the pastures interact with the spellologists and their materials or how the cave explorers interact with the locals in the town. It's all very simple and I think you could connect some larger thematic argument. There are things there, particularly in the later passage of the movie, when what winds up being the shepherd's last days are intercut with the final phases of the exploration of the bottom of the cave, which is something like 630 meters below the surface of the earth. I think you could pull away from that intercutting an idea about, you know, the death of a way of life or the coming of a modern era. There are images of celebrities in the magazines that they bring down into the caves. But to me, that's reading a little too far into it. And the movie is just so pleasant and calm that it doesn't need something deeper than just kind of politely and serenely existing around these people and their work and their lives. Perfect movie. Perfect movie. That's maybe my number two, but I'll leave it at number three for now. Oh, but still keep in your No, keep the keep number four in, yeah. As well. Okay. Don't take it out. Just put both of them in. Okay. Well, my current standing number three is the worst person in the world. Arguably a 2021 movie. Interesting. Well, Kim Trier. I find it a pretty devastating and clear-eyed portrait of that 20s to 30s cusp particularly watching it at a time when I was still forming what is now my professional ambition at a time when I was in a changing relationship status. It caught me at the right time and it caught me pretty off guard. I wonder if it plays differently almost a year later for me. I would have to go back and watch, but there are certain passages like the breakup sequence and not just the fantasy of it, but the conversation afterwards that feel very painfully real and believable. I like the journey that that main character goes through to be in touch with herself more. It felt like 
a very tender, sensitive, but also very energetic and vibrant movie. Worst person in the world. I loved Worst Person in the World. I didn't even know you watched this. <laughs> yeah. I think Trier's filmmaking is so on point in that movie. The trio of performances are all so good in that. Very, very good. I agree. Yeah. yeah. It was really high up on my 2021 list. I counted it in my 2022 list. It didn't really land very high. I can't really say why. I think that's fair too. Yeah, I don't know. I'm past that cusp and I watched it when I was on the cusp. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. But I think it's also because I think I'm not really personally past the cusp yet. Like I might be on an age level, but I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah. So I think I just don't get it. I don't think I've hit it yet. Yeah. I, I don't think I've quite hit it yet either, but there's something about looking ahead and maybe anxiously anticipating yeah. those things that feels activated by any movie that shows you what could be coming down the road. Mm. Yeah. I think it's like I didn't have it and I was like, oh shit. Mm. <laughs> That's like, probably for the best. Which is like rough. I mean, I don't know if it is, but okay. <laughs> Similarly to like Return to Soul, they both have really destructive main leads. That's true. But still leads that I feel so much care for and I just want to be okay by the film's end. Yeah. It really settles me, the, the ending of The Worst Person in the World. It really, really settles me. Yeah. That's a great word for it. And that song is really great. A stick, a stone, it's the end yeah. of the road. <laughs> What about your number three, Ben? Uh, my number three pick is Benjamin. the favorite movie I saw at the 2022 Singapore Film Festival. And it's an Iranian film called Layla's Brothers. Oh, of course. Directed by Saeed Rustai. I'm not so sure how to pronounce this. Uh, this is a very, very strong feature. It's long, but it does not feel that way. It's a riot to watch. It is acidic in its humor. Oof. It's about this family of four brothers and a sister played by Tarani Lucy. Essentially, she's the titular Layla and her four brothers are like layabouts. They are unemployed. They can't find work. <laughs> They're poor. Whole family's poor. And she is supporting the entire family. She's the only person in her family, including her parents, who is employed. And she's single-handedly carrying the entire family and trying to help them. And essentially, the film is about how they concoct a plan to improve the financial situation and things just never go well. And it's just like a shit show from start to finish. And for some reason, even though that it's just like the bleakest thing ever, it's like you're poor and you're going to get poorer. <laughs> like it's so bleak and yet it remains funny throughout. And they're like just such assholes to each other. And I don't know how he makes that balancing act work, but even though they're such assholes to each other, there's still like this familial warmth that you feel between the characters. And Layla, as much as she is supporting an entire family, you still feel like, you know, sometimes she needs to chill out a little bit. So it's kind of like difficult to figure out where your sympathies really lie. Mm. Like sometimes like the brothers make bad decisions, but it's not because they're bad people. It's because they're like trying to honor something it's like some tradition or some filial piety or something like that. And so it was like huh. an interesting movie to watch. And the fact that it is funny and enjoyable to watch despite its bleakness, despite how shitty things get for all of them, is a testament to how well made it is. It's a good movie. You recommended this one really strongly to both Wilson and I. Yeah. yeah. I hope it comes out soon. Yeah, I hope so too. I don't know if it's going to get a wider release, but uh, it was a really, mm. really strong uh, movie. Yeah, one of my favorites of the year. Okay, on to our number twos. My number two film is another directorial feature debut. This movie 
I don't know. I don't have the words. I don't think I have the right words to describe why I love this movie so much. It is Charlotte Wells's After Sun. Yeah. It tells the story of a girl and her father who go on holiday trips when she's young and also when Sophie's a little older and realizing through these memories that her father was going through a really hard time emotionally and mentally. Uh, hard for me to talk about this film because I think a lot of my emotional connection with this film is because I also have a parent that is gone. And I think that is something that makes it a lot more potent. Mm -hmm. Thinking back to those moments and sort of trying to relive those memories, it's not just that, oh, my parents weren't the people that I thought they were, but it's also trying to like just recapture those moments of connection that you have with a parent. Mm. Sophie in this film, like looking at the memories and her documenting things with her video camera are all like modes of that and expressions of that. Yeah, I don't have I don't think I still have the the like the accurate words to describe why it um spoke to me so deeply, but I think because I don't. That's why it is so high up on this list. And that's why I love it so much. Also, like Paul Mescal gives such a quiet mm -hmm. and like incredible, devastating performance in this. Yeah. He's really great. And she's also really great. The the little kids in it, in it is really, really great. And I think the cinematography is so beautiful and slow. It, it is a really slow moving film. But in its slowness, the revelations wash over you in a way that, like, you don't really feel it coming. But then when it hits you, it's like you're drowning. Yeah. It's fucking devastating movie. Um, it's on movie. Go check it out. <laughs> Where there's broad concern or anguish or confusion in this movie the details have so much love and attention all those tiny mundane moments when they're on vacation together are so specific and really full of love it's it is a really hard watch one of the best movies of the year fucking incredible that it's a directorial debut it's like, yeah i'm like thinking like this has there been another directorial debut that has had as universal a critical reaction like this in i don't know the last three decades i can't think of a single debut that has been so like this was on like this is probably like the number one film of the year like if we were to take it everyone's yeah. listings in aggregate sight and sound did like a whole survey yeah. of it and it was the number one film of the year so i'm just like thinking i don't think of any directorial debut has been so strong for as long as I can remember, anyway. I see why it was particularly painful, Wilson. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I don't know how I relate to this film. It's like such a difficult film for me to relate to sometimes. It is like too crushing for me to watch, mm -hmm. I think. It feels really <laughs> fucked up to rank it. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of does. Because I think, you know, sometimes you watch a movie and you're like not really sure how you're feeling this is that movie for me and i don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing or like it's a thing that you can even put on a scale i found it yeah. very hard to give it 
a star rating. It feels reductive. Yeah, it does. and I'm like, I don't know if I like it or like, do I like the experience of watching it? I found it very sad in a way that I couldn't explain. And I think a lot of it came from me kind of relating to the film from the perspective of the person it's looking at, because mm. the film is constructed in such a way that is Sophie looking at her memories of her father. And I think it was strange to watch it and feel more like that I was watching a film about Callum first, mm. even though it's not really from his perspective. I didn't really know how to take that because I think I felt more closely aligned with Callum's emotional arc. Yeah. But we don't really get a full picture of it. And that is the film. The film was about how you don't get a full picture yeah yeah and i was like i can't deal with how it's not a full picture i just cannot deal with uh, i felt like i knew the full picture and the film was not showing me the full picture and not knowing was too much to bear uh, I, I it's really hard to explain like what i mean by this like i think yeah i to me it captures a similar david lynch thing where explanation and even understanding are just out of reach and it is particularly painful when it is about that kind of familial connection that's yeah. just out of reach. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I can't place this film anywhere right now, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think I told yeah. someone else, like, yeah, it just has a streak of sadness that I just... I, I find, like, much too unbearable to think about how to place myself or to try to, like, relate myself to this film. Yeah. Because, like, some of the things that I was... It was making me think about were, like, too close to home yeah at least in terms of me thinking about the emotional journey of callum's character mm. of callum yeah it's just like yeah <laughs> it is massive and the thought of making that huge sadness public so blatantly in a way that everyone seems to be commiserating in and really sharing an experience of <sighs> Yeah, it, similarly, it, it kind of evades. We're just speechless, so that's, that's yeah. like really okay. a loss of words. Yeah. Hopefully a lighter <laughs> number two. Uh, Kind of, kind of. My number two movie of 2022 is David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future, which yeah. I adore. It is gross. It is creepy. And people digest plastic. <laughs> but I really love it because through all its meandering and oddities and strange performance beats, which are in and of themselves delightful, it ultimately winds up in a place of hope, pragmatic and oddball hope about what the future of humanity could look like in this speculative sci-fi vision where mm -hmm. we wind up able to digest plastic if we embrace that change. Yeah, it's a nasty little, <laughs> thoughtful little movie, and it really got under my skin, and I had a great time watching it. You oh. both saw it? No! I saw it. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I don't know why. I was really drawn to Kristen Stewart's performance. Oh, my God. It was hot in this movie in a way I just uh, don't... <laughs> I'm not going to explain myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> a little nasty little thing. I don't know why. It's just like, yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like It's almost like Cronenberg, but made extremely accessible. I don't know if you agree with me, Eli. Well, but it felt very accessible. I agree. Even though it was Cronenberg. What it's about, like really makes sense. Yeah. Like the idea of digesting plastic and this idea of surgery being 
this performance. It's like, what? But it like, he is able to like make that make sense within the context of this. I have no mm. idea what's going on with the living furniture. Oh man, I do not understand. But looks cool. It does. I'm okay with it. <laughs> it help him eat. It help him digest. <laughs> yeah, I feel more wow. and more certain that we'll likely be discussing if not crimes of the future then cronenberg more widely mm. in a future miniseries i don't know if it'll be upcoming directly but i have been slowly accruing more and more viewings mm. and research cronenberg yeah. in the future i'm building a case <laughs> but i like this idea that it is if not more accessible then i think a more polished vision mm. of his worldview mm. Mm. I cannot wait for a Cronenberg series. It'll be we'll fun. See. We're supposed to go sicko mode for a while, and we have yeah. not got there yeah. yet. We've yeah. got sicko mode constipation, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Finding how to digest. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta eat some plastic. My number two. Speaking of constipation, <laughs> your number two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> good one, good one. Uh, thank you. <laughs> My number two is will be a problematic fave for people, but I think my number two is RRR. Uh, <laughs> yeah! And I'm not going to say too much about this because we talked about it at length in our episode. Um, but I think. But we didn't really get to shower it with that much praise. I guess. But like, I just, it was like a very good time in the movies as a blockbuster, as a case for simple storytelling so well constructed and much more emotional than like other ideas of what a simple storytelling is supposed to be like <laughs> this is a three-hour movie you could really summarize in one paragraph but it gives makes a case for why it is so long and then it really pushes those emotional highs as far as it can it really was like my one of the, my favorite times at the movies this year yeah and also a great discovery because it was also my first roger movie film yeah yes it's problematic go listen to our episode we dig into that but I think I still can't shake the feeling that, you know, this is just really damn good blockbuster filmmaking. It just is. It's damn good filmmaking. Yeah. It's right outside so, my top three. It's number four. It's right yeah, there. That's number right two. I'm, I'm with you, Ben. Wilson, he's side-eye emojiing Avatar The Way of Water <laughs> when he talks about simple storytelling. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I don't know why you know. No, the subtext about. spoke for itself. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> and our number ones yeah yeah some films are about everything <laughs> my number one film is sort of about nothing a novelist travels to a bookstore <sighs> run by an old friend and an old colleague um who she's been out of touch with and from this interaction at the bookstore leads her into a day where she goes about this town outside of Seoul when she meets a couple of people. She meets a director who once commissioned a novel of hers to make into a film that never got made, and also an actress that she admires. She bumps on in this walk. You'd think that I would go by a whole year-end review episode without talking about the dear Hong Sang-soo. <laughs> but here we are, in 2022-3, and he's done it. He's finally done it, and he has made a number one movie of the year for me. It is The Novelist's Film. The Novelist's Film. 
Oh my god! What a rollout. That was beautifully told, Wilson. Oh, thank you, Eli. This film, uh, it's like, what is it about? It is not really about anything. She just mm. has her day. She has these conversations with these people. But she ponders life. She ponders art. She wants to make a movie with this actress that she really loves. And this actress and her, they have this really strong bond. And mm. through that bond, you're able to see this love of creation, this love of wanting to make something devoid of critics, devoid of audiences, just a need to create, the need to tell stories. And this is where Hong Sang-soo is at in his career. Mm, oh. He loves making things. He loves Kim Min-hee, his girlfriend. <laughs> he loves the people that he works with. Wife guy Hong Sang-soo. <laughs> not Except wife not. guy. Not. Definitely not wife guy. Decidedly not wife guy. If you guy. watch his other film from this year, Walk Up, he, that explains why he's not a wife guy. Definitely not a wife guy. Ooh. But Lee Hye-young plays the titular novelist in this film. And she has been starring in Hong films since, I think, Hotel by the River. So it's, she's had probably wow. like a six-film run, mm. run with him. In Front of Your Face, she's really good in In Front of mm -hmm. Your Face. But in this, she's incredible. I love her screen presence. I love how she dominates silent moments mm. by just looking at her co-star and just like, egging them on like oh what are you gonna say next how am i gonna react to what you say next she has such a strong attitude in this film i love her presence him and he matches her with such a beautiful and warm energy there's this really long scene that happens when they're eating cold noodles at a shop and um, they're talking and a, and a little girl passes mm. by in the background in the window and looks in. I saw this in an empty cinema in Seoul with my friend and I was like, wait, was that intentional? She walks past. Yeah, I wondered that too. And then a few <laughs> minutes later and the scene goes along. It's a long take scene. She comes back into this onto screen and just peers into the window. And I'm like, oh my God, this is cinema right here. And I thought that would be my favorite moment of the movie. But no, the end of the film which is sort of a um, realization of the film that the novelist wants to make mm. happen. The whole film happens in black and white, and this mini film at the end of it is sort of like coda, the end, where it turns to color. It's very obvious that it's Hong shooting on his iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> He's shooting Kim Min-hee, and she's singing a wedding procession. She's holding flowers. And she looks at the camera and she says, I love you. <gasps> it fucking took my breath away. And I was like, holy shit. This is cinema right here. This is love right here. And that is my favorite film of 2022. Wow. Is this your favorite Hong? Oh, hard to say. <laughs> hard to say. I think it is. I think it is. In reevaluating what this film means to me, as opposed to my other, like, my other top Hong, which is Claire's camera, mm. this might take the cake. It is just that good. And I love him. I love him so much. It's so nice to watch how much Wilson loves these films. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I just want to hear him describe <laughs> Hong Sang-soo movies to me. <laughs> don't, don't watch them. Just describe them. <laughs> You should do that. You should do Hong Sang-soo commentary, just Wilson. I did not work on yeah. this, but I'm going to give you commentary. <laughs> I'm just going to talk about this movie. 
Yeah, Ben, you caught this and, and, and enjoyed it quite a bit, right? I enjoyed it. I, I mean, I still don't know how to place myself with Hong. Like, I don't know if he's too nothing or is something. I am getting there. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is like, this is on the, on the line for me. Like, I think I haven't seen that much Hong, but I still think Woman Ren, I liked more or like was more immediately drawn to. But I think this one, the interactions were really pleasant and nice. Actually, the first time you meet Kim Min Hee in the park, she's like kind of weird. I don't know why, but she's like kind of like <laughs> funny and she's talking about walking around the park a lot. Yeah. She just immediately is somebody that you like to look at and like is like very naturally charismatic. Yeah. Um, and this is a the thing they talk about charisma in the film. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that your charisma. Which I found maybe like the most interesting like thing they were talking about. Just to give you context, Eli, like they, they keep telling the novelist, right? That yeah. she has charisma she has and charisma. she keeps denying yeah. it but they're like no you have charisma yeah <laughs> it's I, it's fascinating i don't know why yeah, yeah. but i'm coming around the hong I'm, yes yes you say it's sort of like okay people are like applying labels but she's shaking them off it's all it's like no like no it's not mm. about i'm not doing anything it's not about anything this movie is not about anything it's great yeah i'm thinking about how all three of wilson's top three are self-reflexive about filmmaking in some sense whether it's empowering <laughs> or destructive and distancing, or connective, or ruminative. That's an interesting little through line. Mm -hmm. Could be. The power of the movies. I don't see it myself, but yeah, it is the power of movies. It does make sense to me. (laughs) I mean, in in a sense, their films are about, they're tearing away from the form a little bit. They're tearing the form apart a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And putting it back together. Yeah, and especially when when you've seen as many movies as Wilson has, like it takes a lot to for a movie to become interesting again. And usually tearing the form apart is a way to do that. It really Mm. does. Good point. My top three, Eli. Okay. My number one. Towards the end of last school year, I had, I think, recently secured my position for the fall. And I knew I was going to be teaching. I found myself with an afternoon alone to myself, free. And I decided to go to film at Lincoln Center. And see a picture that was only in town for a brief period called Memoria. Mm. Memoria is a movie that more so than maybe any other calms me. And of course, I've only seen it once. I've only had the chance to see it once because it rotates in cinemas throughout the United States. A method of distribution, which I have often bemoaned, up until the point that I watched it, because that special movie is best viewed in a theater in a sanctified, rarefied viewing experience. It's a movie that asks you to take a nap in the middle of it. It's just such a peaceful experience that is really rare and I think deeply compassionate. I just find myself thinking about it a lot and thinking about the experience that it gave me and the calm that it gave me, I view that as an act of generosity and kindness. The thing that sparks the plot, but not really plot, is that Tilda Swinton hears a big thunk in the night, and she goes about trying to express to people around her what that noise was and what it meant to her. So the whole journey of the movie that brings her around to different places and different people is about trying to 
make one's experience understood and connect to people through sound specifically. And there's something that opens up a whole world through that goal. There's something I believe in the Mino by Plato, which is an analogy that in order to be good, you have to ask the question, what is goodness? And it's like mm. a lantern trying to find what light is in a dark room by turning itself on, mm. inherently casting light. And I just really like the idea that by going on this journey, Tilda Swinton inherently winds up connecting to people and taking naps with them. Yes. It's great. It's so chill. It's a really special movie. And that is one of the viewing experiences that meant the most to me this year. Yeah. I really love that movie. Memoria. My number one. Wow. That's a great number one pick, Eli. It's Thank such you. a moving, moving picture. So calming as well. Yeah. Yeah. It really made me want to check out more We Are Sethical. Same. Yeah. Mm. I am totally willing to do a dive into We're Ethical. I want to view more. He's like pure cinema. I can't explain it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I get it. Yeah. It's just kind of like that. Yeah. Okay. Benjamin. Benjamin, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? I hate this. I hate that I went last. <laughs> <laughs> this is me outing myself as a basic bitch. <laughs> No. Don't be ashamed, Ben. Don't be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed ashamed. about it. But I mean, if you look at my top three picks, like essentially this year, I just liked more popular cinema, which I found kind of interesting that despite everywhere I went, I didn't love everything I saw. But when I saw this film, (laughs) I felt a lot of feelings all at once. (laughs) So you could say laying breadcrumbs might. Favorite film of the year was Everything Everywhere All at Once. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I think part of me felt like I had to rewatch it to reassess it, considering the critical appraisal and then reappraisal that it has been having to like think about whether I really liked it as much as I liked it. But I don't really care because I can tell you it's my favorite film from one experience of it just because I liked that experience. Yeah. Mm. You know, maybe if I watch it again, I might dislike it. But as far as I can remember, like that one experience in the theater was maybe the most life-affirming one that I had this year. Mm. And for me to say that about a film made by two freaking weirdo dweebs <laughs> about completely stupid shit at some points is incredible. And the fact that I'm not alone in liking this is really strange. Yeah. I watched this way back in March and that was before like the hype train for this film really like started going off the rails. Mm. I was just like, oh, this is really great. It just uses Michelle Yeoh in such a fantastic way in terms of using her star power and the kind of persona that she already has mm-hmm. and the skills that she has is a terrific reintroduction of Ki Kwan yeah, doing totally. incredible work. And now he is on a incredible supporting actor awards run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just being an absolute darling on the red carpet everywhere. <laughs> the meaning of the film is so simple. Its messaging is so plain. It tells you to your face. It's not subtle. It is the least subtle movie I've ever seen. Mm. (laughs) Like this message of being kind, like I think that is just constructive and useful. And the fact that some of you have seen it and have gleaned this message from one of the weirdest movies ever made is quite incredible, I think, uh, when we look back on it. Whether we think of it as being a five or four or whatever star movie, yeah, I think that is an achievement in itself. Me putting it at number one is also kind of me validating everyone else who likes this movie mm. and tell them to say shout out to the haters. Because if you like this movie and you got something from it, then that's great. Yeah. The fact that so many people I know who are like 
don't even watch movies that much can tell me, oh, you know, yeah, I like that movie too. Like, it was a unifying movie. Mm. You know, it's not a movie about finding complexity or like searching for the most obscure thing to show what you like. It's just a movie that people can get behind and was not really a Hollywood-ish movie. It was not a big tentpole blockbuster, but it had that reach and that capability of like bringing all those people to come to love it. That is an achievement. Yes, it's about being kind to others, but it's also a film about being kind to yourself. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yes. The secret sauce of the movie is that it is about Stephanie Sue's character, I forgot the character's name, and about her aching depression. That is something that really connects with me. The fact that it's able to get that message across on top of it's kind of like what people think of as a pat intergenerational Asian story. That is actually the P under the, like P-E-A under the mattress that like sticks with me. Mm. That it is about that. Like this stupid thing with a bagel is so stupid, but it is also about that, Mm. you know? And I don't know, like I think it is able to merge its lowbrow sensibilities with a very pure and relevant message that feels universally appropriate. I agree, Ben. What a perfect movie to bring people together this year as well. Yeah. I think a subset of that argument to be kind is to look out for what other people need and for what you need Mm. to identify that so that you can be kind to them. Mm. And I think everyone kind of needed that sort of connection to band together in love of this movie and to celebrate it mm-hmm. together. It's so nice that the that most of the reception to the movie has mirrored its thematic argument and has felt like a putting into action of its thematic argument. Mm-hmm. I think the Daniels have also like responded to the way that the criticism yeah. of the movie has kind of like got like vacillated between extremes. It really mm-hmm. has. They have really responded to it very well. Like I really respect that of them. Yeah. To do that. Mm-hmm. Like they tell their own fans to be like, you know, you don't have to fight anyone about this movie. You know, if you like it, you like it. If they don't like it, it's fine. And they're like, they don't care. Honestly, they're still in a state of shock that people even like this movie that much because they were like, it's fucking weird. (laughs) I think that humility that they have speaks through the movie as well as in the way that they have engaged the public about the movie as well. Yeah. If this wins the best picture, it'd be kind of crazy, honestly. I would be happy with that win. I'd be very happy with that win as well. I think it would be like a pretty well-deserved win and like one that like is popular but also is special in a way yeah 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 it's inventing a lot too technically and stylistically mm. i could get into like more of like why it's good but like i don't really want to talk too much about it anymore mm. <laughs> yeah no worries yeah i love how all our number ones are sort of very like simple or like they're not complex in it's in their messaging elemental yeah, mm. yeah. wow oh <sighs> Okay, we've made it. We did it. So that's 2022, guys. 2022. Fuck TV, I guess. This went yeah. on too long. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to just say what our favorite show was, mm, title only, of the year? I think it's fine. It's... Better Call Saul. <laughs> or Mavet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The rehearsal. <laughs> also good. 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 I think TV was good, but not great this year. But I don't think I was watching the right TV. Better Call Saul was great. Yeah. The biggest shame yeah. of us not being able to go through the TV and then to music. We were going to do music on this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. But we just went on too long about the movies. Because I had set up a joke in my head where I was going to hype up this musician that I really, really like, who I discovered recently. Oh. A little known musician on SoundCloud whose album is not released yet. Oh, uh, yeah. 
yeah. The little known album called Inland oh my by <laughs> Eli Sands. <laughs> I was waiting for us to get there so I could say this. Oh. But yeah. <laughs> That took me way too long. He let me in an album, and it's not out yet, but it's fantastic. Damn good album! Thank you. It's so good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, maybe I'll drop that this year. We'll wait for our 2023 episode, <laughs> and we'll open with our music section. <laughs> Perfect. We start a whole new podcast just for music. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's very sweet. So anyway... <laughs> As we do this every year, I think this is a good chance to thank everybody for listening the past three years that we've been doing this podcast. Yeah, yeah. A massive thank you to everyone who's been sticking with us. We're so happy with how our little community has started to grow a little more in the past Mm -hmm. few years. Mm -hmm. Keep subscribing to us. We have some nice director series in store for you this year. Hopefully getting back to some regular scheduled programming. For the deep cut podcast while we also thank our listeners i'll thank both of you Aww. because getting to record with you guys is a constant highlight and grounding force in the last couple of years it's just an excuse to be able to chat with you guys really so yeah <laughs> that's yeah. the ultimate benefit it really it's is. been nice to like it gives more meaning to watching movies in a way yes because yeah. yes. i think sometimes like when i watch something and i don't talk about it with anyone and it's like what was the point of that Mm. so it's like always hoping it's good so you can tell you guys that i've watched something yeah. good because if it's bad i don't really want to think about it if it's average it's even worse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's always been nice full circle deep cut i think that's one of the main benefits of watching movies in general is mm. getting to share them with the people who you care about mm-hmm. exactly Whew. okay wrapping up another year mm-hmm. already a little bit into 2023 as we record this yes. Yeah, Sundance happened with a lot of fucking movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's close it out. <laughs> Let's shout. Okay. Eli, you want to take it? Sure. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description of this episode. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you this year. Yeah. Enjoy the Oscars! (laughs) To Leslie. (laughs) Woohoo!